because it's recorded at the Trapdoor Chicken Coop in Samiesville, Pennsylvania. It's the We Talk Games monthly video magazine. We Talk Games. Today's special guest, the founder of Electronic Arts, the 3DO Company, and Digital Chocolate, Trip Hawkins. And the first ever meeting of the We Talk Games Mega Council of video game Google Plexinaires. I'm Stinky the Game Master, along with the We Talk Games Submarine Orchestra. And now, here's the host of our show, Wiggly. Thank you, Stinky. I'm trying to keep calm for today's show. It's a huge show! Welcome to We Talk Games Episode 12 in the booth, Kiefel Posh. Yo. Sitting to my left, the lovely, the, oh, you're glowing, T.T. Schmutkins. If I ever could be here, I would wonder, 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 wonder why it is so dear to sit behind the shingles of a melancholy deer and search for hidden meanings on a transitory rear. Sweetheart, we... We have a very long show today, and I, I just need to stay calm and get through this show. Lift a limb toward heaven and remember what and when, for in the starch of liquid that is meaningful and then, a chance of floating purple tang in shattered violin. What are you doing? I'm practicing my part for Stinky's play. Oh, you, you wrote a play, huh? Yeah, I wrote a play. It's great. Yes, I want a hoot scout. A hoot scout? A hoot scout. A hoot scout. A hoot scout. All right, well, you don't have to do it now, For guys. when I'm riddled with doubt. With doubt? With doubt. Doubt? With doubt. With doubt. I know I can count on you, <sighs> my spry-like little friend. For in the foxholes of my life, you helped me to transcend. You know that it's unlike me ever to pretend. If I could be there for you, I certainly contend. We'd make it to the tippy-top of a rook assault split end. Keith, can you cut their mics? But now, I know we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can. Can, 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 well, if you can. Down, Louisian. Timid, wise man. I'm an old man. And I can. That's a great time plan. Can. 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 Yes. Oh, my gosh. You're driving me nuts. All right. Sorry about that, everyone. In fact, don't just leave. Let's go. I sound like a robot, this must be the retro review part Because if it's from the 80s, you must sing like robot I love you See what I did there, Keith? Yeah, sometimes you have to sacrifice conjugation for content It's no problem poop poop doo Will you get out? Hi-yi-yi Alright very quick retro review today Wii Virtual Console For the Super Nintendo, we saw Pilot Wings I loved Pilot Wings when it came out for the Super Nintendo. Please tell me we're going to get the N64 Pilot Wings or maybe even a Pilot Wings for the Wii. But I doubt it due to the fact that the Pilot Wings like bits in Wii Sports Resort. Also, Final Fight 3 came out for all you Final Fight completists, Super Nintendo versions. TT and Stinky got me so upset. I, I wanted it. I like blew my voice out on that one. I have to suck a lozenge before we get Trip Hawkins on the line here. Genesis saw Shanghai 2, Dragon's Eye. It's your Mahjong tile matching style puzzle game. Shadow Dancer, also the follow-up to the Shinobi arcade game. A Ninja and His Dog. This was a gorgeous game on the Genesis, but, you know, it's a Genesis version of an arcade game. So, if we had the Shinobi, 
arcade version, why not get the arcade version of Shadow Dancer? I, I have no idea how this Wii Store works. We probably will next month. But the real excitement was in the WiiWare section. First, an oddball, Rabbids Lab. Do you ever want to have one of those Rayman's Raving Rabbids as a virtual pet? Now for five bucks you can. He lives inside your Wiimote, and it's a very clever distraction. It's more like a desktop toy, and I'm sure it's going to get pooped on for not being a game. But I don't think that's what it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be a little desktop toy. So check it out if you're a fan of the little rabbits. Tecmo's Eat Fat Fight combines all your favorite genres. And by favorite, I mean who doesn't like puzzle games married to sumo wrestling games married to pro wrestling games. So if you like to play Puyu Puyu, then suplex a sumo wrestler, you might like this title. Another one you might want to check out a video of is Kronos Twins. At first, it might just look like a very lethargic split-screen platform shooter, but it really draws to mind the closest thing to the Virtual Boy Wario Land that I've seen so far, except it uses a split-screen instead of the dual 3D levels that you would bounce your Wario between. Phoenix Wright also made its debut in WiiWare for $10. It is a DS game. On your Wii, it's Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney, and they do have plans to bring out the rest of the Phoenix Wright series. And if you tried to get your hands on the DS versions of these games since the last episode, those games are no longer $6. (laughs) Those games I've seen as high as $100 new for some of the Phoenix Wright series. Now, a game that you know I went absolute bonkers for was Namco Bandai's Muscle March. Hey, what could be more enjoyable than marching a group of naked, oiled-up muscle men and a polar bear in a Speedo, and I think one of them is a lady, through a hole in the wall? Best five bucks I ever spent! It's very reminiscent to that Japanese game show called Hole in the Wall, and all you do is you try to match the leader of this walking muscle man march as he busts through various walls throughout a city or even in outer space... And you just match your poses by holding the nunchuck and the Wii remote in various muscle poses. I really think that the $5 price point makes this novelty worth it. And plus it has that wacky Namco Bandai music as well. But the biggie was the $10 Castlevania The Adventure Rebirth. And this title follows in the recent trend to keep games looking like the time period they came from. And the best way, I think, to describe this Castlevania Game Boy recreation is describing it as an arcade version of Castlevania during the 8-bit era. Sort of along the lines of perhaps a Black Tiger or some other arcade game like that. It's almost at the 16-bit level. I don't think it's really full Super Nintendo quality. The music is, and some of the backgrounds are. But the graphics really reminded me of, like I said, an arcade version during the 8-bit era. But, hey, it's awesome. It is Castlevania, and I'm very happy with it. For the Xbox Arcade and the PlayStation Store, Vandal Hearts Flames of Judgment came out. This was a, a title I was really looking forward to. However, it is a polygon version of Vandal Hearts with your cross section of the terra firma playfield floating in a blue sky. And it is the standard Vandal Hearts battle mechanics, the turn-based square agonal, is that what this is? Battle game. But to me, 
it's just not as charming without that pixel art. That being said, I really didn't delve into this game, but it's available for demo so far on the Xbox 360, and hopefully we'll get a demo in the PlayStation Store as well. Also for both the Xbox Arcade and PlayStation Store, Matt Hazard, Blood, Bath, and Beyond. Here's a gorgeous run-and-gunner. Pretty high level of difficulty, I think. Plus, you get to interact with some elements in the background, so it does push it into that third dimension. But basically, it's your standard horizontal run-and-gun. Check it out. It's available for demo on both systems. Now, Duke Nukem may be in limbo, but Serious Sam HD, the first encounter, is here. It's on the Xbox Arcade. It's $15, and it only took 14 years to get here. But who's counting? This is a fun little first-person shooter in the style of Doom, and it does show its age a bit, but it has some very nice character design and attitude. Plus, it's downloadable, so that's great. Demo it up on that one, I say. Over at the PlayStation Store, I think the only thing to mention is a Ninja Gaiden Sigma 2 DLC table for Zen Pinball. Nothing yet for the 360 Pinball FX version. The Ninja Gaiden Sigma 2 table is a four-flipper wide body with some non-traditional interaction. In fact, good old Ninja Gaiden <laughs> sliced my ball in half at one point, so you might enjoy this. And it will definitely get you psyched up for next month's pinball-centric We Talk Games. And also an announcement that made me very happy, Yakuza 3 is coming to the USPS 3! And that's it. So, uh, Keith, open the line. Let me uh, pop a lozenge in here. Open the line. Trip Hawkins. This is going to be amazing. San Mateo, California. Trip Hawkins. Welcome to We Talk Politics. Now, Trip. All right. Hopefully not real politics. <laughs> no, not really. Uh, now, Trip, you built one of the most successful, if not the most successful, American video game brands of all time. You created an entire gaming system with the serious gamer in mind that could also lend itself to the casual gamer. And the it just does it all type of mentality nearly 17 years before the PS3 would launch its Just Does It All campaign. And then you preceded the iApp explosion by about six years by founding a company whose main focus was mobile DLC. And a lot is known of your success your achievements in the realm of video games and video gaming. But Don't forget I've, my failures. Those are really well known. <laughs> well yeah, well of course people always wanna, you know, get something to jab you when you're doing too <laughs> when you're too high. They want to jab you down a little bit. Uh, we've heard a lot about this stuff. This is all quite public, but I've rarely heard about you personally. Like how did you come to video games? Why video games? Well, you know, when I was a kid I uh, uh figured out from playing board games that I was just noticing that I was much more stimulated and alive and involved and engaged when I was uh, playing games. And I particularly liked uh, board games where you could have a really compelling fantasy or simulate something enjoyable from real life, like a sport that you loved. So I started uh, focusing on that type of uh, game and kind of fell in love with uh, one particular tabletop sports simulation brand called Stratomatic. And that just kind of really got me going and got my imagination going about wanting to design my own games. So I started designing games when I was a teenager and, of course, was designing uh, pre-computer games. So these were games that used dice and cards and charts and, you know, relied on the probabilities of different things happening. Right, right. 
and I found that it was hard to get friends to play with me because it was too much work. Yeah. And then I saw my first computer, and I, and I thought, aha, we'll, we'll make the computer do the work. And I committed myself to learning about how to do that with computers, and that's kind of well, where it went. Wow. And you had training in colleges or school? Well, you know, um, when I got to college, I already kind of had this career in mind. So I basically spent a couple of years uh, convincing my college that they ought to let me study uh, how to make video games. And that was a very hard sell at the time. Mm. You know, they, <laughs> they didn't think of that as a serious uh, academic pursuit. I've actually been really delighted since then in seeing how many universities have specific curriculum for the game industry. I think that's just a spectacular development. It acknowledges that mainstream society takes what we gamers do and care about seriously. And, and then a couple of years ago, one of my uh, mentors from college won the Nobel Prize for his work on game theory. So I'm, I'm really feeling kind of validated that what we all do with games is uh, recognized now as, as being a serious field of endeavor. Right, right. And you were just inducted recently, I guess, into uh, a Hall of Fame of sorts. Yeah, that was a, that was a couple of years ago. But uh, yeah, that was that was quite an honor. Uh, you know, obviously, I guess if you uh, spend thirty, forty years uh, doing the same thing, sometimes you, you get a chance to see those accomplishments pile up a little bit. Well, right next to the heads of Sega and the heads of Nintendo and the heads of SquareSoft, that's that's pretty lofty uh, group of companions there. Well, you know what? Uh, of course, I, I know a lot of those guys, and in fact, uh, the first guy that, that was elected was Miyamoto's son, and of course, uh, he was absolutely the most deserving first person to be honored in that fashion, and I was fortunate enough to uh, be the uh, master of ceremonies uh, at that first event and got to congratulate him and introduce him for uh, uh, winning that award, so... I really appreciate the fact that that particular institution and that particular award is really more focused on uh, creativity and design work. And obviously, I'm, I'm kind of known for some of my business accomplishments, but I, I personally have always been the most interested in the creative opportunities for me in the industry and, and what I've been able to do to in, in the way of expressing myself creatively. Right on, right on. And that was the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, so that's great. And they only have one uh, inductee per year, so good stuff there. Now, how did you turn your love, your passion for gaming, your want to uh, you know, make these things happen on a screen? A uh, good thing you weren't just in, enamored with Pokino or something like that, or don't break the camel's back. I guess that wouldn't have been in your college days. But you were more involved with these strategy charts and 18-sided die and things like this. So how did you turn that passion into a business? Well, the way I think about business is that if you're going to start something new, obviously you have to be innovating and breaking some new ground, but you should look for reference points from existing businesses. And before I founded Electronic Arts, I, I spent about a decade thinking about how to found Electronic Arts. So it was basically 10 years uh, in the making. Mm. And all, the, all that time over that course of 10 years, I was figuring out the foundational principles and uh, what it would have to have going for it. And, you know, new businesses have a high fatality rate. You know, a lot of them don't make it. Sure. I was convinced that I had to have a really big idea that made a lot of sense. And then I would have to have some other supporting elements that would really give the business an opportunity. So I figured out from the work I was doing in my early career that software development could really be thought of as an art form and that the 
process of developing it and managing developers could be managed like artists doing creative work hmm. and that's where I realized that I could use Hollywood as a reference point because Hollywood of course has a lot of experience managing uh, different kinds of creative talent and helping bring their products to market and uh, commercializing them so that led to kind of the fundamental underlying ideas about the strategy for electronic arts having to do with basically looking at how Hollywood companies manage creative talent how, how they manage the development process and how to kind of integrate some of those ideas into what I already knew about software development and how to manage engineers. And then also looking at marketing and channels of distribution and, and drawing principles from that. Wow. So did you treat it like maybe an animation studio from Hollywood? Or what exactly did you pull from the well, Hollywood? You know, ironically, uh, back at that time, games were developed usually by a teenager living at home with his parents on an Apple II. Right. And so the, the reference really was more to... Uh, an individual uh, recording artist, uh, you know, with a guitar and a tape recorder, and you know, try to figure out, hey, uh, how do you help that individual in the same way that, a, say, a book publisher would help uh, an author writing a book or a music company would help young talent like a Richie Valens who uh, recorded La Bamba mm -hmm. and you know, other hit songs. And that sort of led me to the idea of, well, hey, uh, uh, these recording artists, they get to go to a music studio, which has a lot of tools in it, and you know professional support so why, why don't we do that in my company and of course uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, distribution principles that got adopted in, including working directly with retailers so that you have that relationship and you you know, you're one step closer to the consumer and get better feedback both from the consumer and from the retailer about what's working or what isn't working and you have a chance to get more products on the shelf that way mm -hmm. and then you can go back to the artists and say to them hey I'm going to do a better job supporting you because I've got better tools and technology to offer you and I'm going to get you get your product more global distribution and it turned out those were really great principles to apply to game development my first experience with Electronic Arts had to be on the Genesis and some of the early titles there like Budokan and uh, Ishido and Zany Golf. Did Electronic Arts develop for the computer first or for the Genesis? What was the timing period on this stuff? Yeah, so I founded the company in 1982. At that point, okay. Atari was uh, cresting the top of the hill with the Atari 2600 which was a extremely limited uh, console system that literally had 128 bytes of memory. Right, right. I did not say 128K, <laughs> I just said 128. Yes. And that, that system could handle, I think, five or six sprites, which is not very many. It had a handful of colors. Uh, you really could not do much more than Pong. And in fact, that system was within a year of the public basically thumbing their nose at it and saying, yeah, we're burned out on this. So that, so that system was really kind of a hula hoop. It was very one-dimensional. And the public kind of caught on to how limited it was when more advanced arcade games like Pac-Man really couldn't be as good in the home as they had been in the arcades. Mm -hmm. Of course, in those days, an arcade system was, was probably a $5,000 computer with a lot more uh, capability. So in, in that time frame, it didn't make sense to, to me to try to make cartridges for the Atari. The manufacturing cost was really high. Atari didn't really even offer a third-party licensing program. They had sued Activision, the first third-party publisher. They weren't really cooperative towards that end. Uh, the machines seemed to be very, very limited. I, I thought Activision was going to have a very limited horizon on that platform, and that turned out to be true. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought the next wave was going to be home computers. 
So we initially supported products like the Apple II and then migrated to lower-priced products like the Commodore 64 and then jumped on 16-bit computers, including the Commodore Amiga and the uh, PC when that came out. You know, the PC came out in the uh, early 1980s, and the PC clone market was really kind of kicking into gear by the mid-1980s. So you mentioned the Sega Genesis. What was interesting about that, you know, it came out in the United States in 1989, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, I was extremely excited about the Sega Genesis because we had done so much work with the Motorola MC68000 16-bit processor, and we'd had it in our development systems, and we'd had it in the Amiga and the Atari ST and the Mac, and of course it had also been used in a lot of the uh, arcade systems, and we had uh, brought coin-up titles, including Marble Madness, from a 68000 code base in an arcade system. We'd brought that over to the Amiga. And here's the Sega Genesis at a $189 retail price with a 68,000 processor in it. And it came with uh, two joysticks, and you could have a much more casual, simple, plug-and-play game experience with a friend and have the power of uh, 16-bit computing. And we were just all over it like a cheap suit. (laughs) Now, I I noticed that you you had mentioned about dealing directly with the end merchants and things like this. Uh, and that really comes to play, I think, even in the, the box style of the early Genesis cartridges. You had your own boxes as compared to the standard Genesis box. When I founded the company, I, I actually wanted to make packaging like record albums. And we did that, and we featured the creative talent, the artists that had made the games. And that was a lot of fun. And you know that was actually widely copied throughout the industry. There were, I think, 20... 21 or 22 other companies that exactly copied that style of packaging that we uh, uh, invented. It was kind of a customized album cover. But the problem was once enough products got onto the shelves, the retail would start to take the facing of that album and turn it sideways, which is called spine out. Yep. And then it would basically make the beautiful cover art disappear, and then you'd be left to having to read what information is on the spine. And it was so thin that it just made the product disappear. And that's, that's why uh, we moved to boxes. And in the case of the Sega Genesis, uh, we had basically reverse-engineered the platform and figured out for ourselves how to build a software toolkit and make Sega Genesis-compatible games without any assistance from Sega. Is that why some of the early titles will only work in those high-definition graphics 16-bit systems, the specific Genesis systems? Well, all of our games worked on all of the Sega Genesis systems, but of course they had to be packaged separately from, you know, so for example, if you made a game like uh, Populous, mm-hmm. you'd have the Commodore Amiga version, and we had a Sega Genesis version, and we had an IBM PC version, etc. It's just that, obviously, the Sega Genesis, the game had to be packaged in a cartridge because the Sega Genesis did not have a disk drive, mm-hmm. and you had to separately manufacture the little chips uh, the ROM chips that the program code would be recorded onto, and we got those manufactured in Taiwan and assemble our own uh, boxes, et cetera. And we were ready to come to market, actually, without a license from Sega. And at, uh, towards the 11th hour, I started a conversation with Sega and just said, look, uh, w- why don't we work out a license agreement and be partners? But we were not willing to go into the more typical standard license agreement because you know we, we didn't feel like we needed to turn over control of our business to Sega for the sake of whatever those benefits might be. Sure. So that's why we had unique and different uh, packaging. Okay. In fact, the initial packaging we make, it, it did not even mention the word Sega. It just said, <laughs> you 
they kind of hinted that, hey, this is a 16-bit game cartridge, and we were trying to make sure that we didn't do anything that Sega would accuse us of a trademark infringement since we didn't have a license. Gotcha. And, of course, once we worked out a deal with them, which was very beneficial to uh, both companies, I think. But sure. it certainly saved EA a tremendous amount of money. Then we could start you know, using their trademarks in our marketing efforts. Yeah, I, I don't think without EA, I don't think the Genesis would have become the the, the super system at that time, you know, synonymous with well, the know, video in, games. In Sega's defense, I mean, they were a couple of years ahead of Nintendo, and that was a period of a certain amount of complacency on Nintendo's part. They were really milking the dominant position they'd had with their 8-bit system and mm-hmm. maybe not as clear on the fact that a lot of customers were ready to move on to something more powerful. And then we were able to introduce new genres of product at the 16-bit level, like EA Sports, mm-hmm. that just hadn't really been a significant part of the 8-bit console landscape. So I think a lot of the 8-bit customer base was uh, younger, and they weren't looking for products as sophisticated like team sports or serious simulation games, serious strategy games. And we, you know, we were able to bring uh, a lot of good stuff to the table because we had spent several years building 16-bit computer games that adapted to the Sega Genesis quite easily. So that definitely that accelerated the two-year lead that the Sega Genesis ended up having over Nintendo. But I wouldn't underestimate the importance of them having a two-year lead. But they also crushed the PC Engine, the Turbo Graphics. Yeah, that product was uh, not a very good system. It was, you know, they called it 16-bit, but it was closer to being an 8-bit system. Yeah, it was uh, just a 16-bit graphics processor on top of uh, 8-bit. Well, particularly in a system of that nature, uh, things like the the bandwidth of the memory bus is going to end up being more important than the bit length of instructions being handled by the CPU chip. I own uh, the Madden, though. That was was one of the death pangs of the uh, Turbo CD, that's for sure. Yeah. What were some of your favorite titles at EA? Did you get to really get your hands in this? How much did your role change over time at EA? Well, I, I kind of did everything at one time or another. People ask me my job description, and I always say that I do whatever is I can't get somebody else to do. And the passion for me was uh, always around the sports games. So I was extremely heavily involved in driving and leading the development of the sports game business, and that includes many of the sports that we covered. Of course, I'm, I'm known for having designed and produced Madden football. I also designed and produced the uh, Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one game. Sure. That segued into, after Julius Irving retired, we put in a guy named Michael Jordan to replace him. Yeah. Uh, so th- those, those were a couple of the linchpin uh, early products that I was very, very heavily involved in. But I was also uh, very heavily involved in uh, our golf products and baseball products and quite a few other categories of sports. The Madden project was interesting because it was the first version of it was uh, much longer in development than anybody thought it was going to be and became known around the company as Trips Folly and probably never would have come out if I hadn't been so personally interested in it and just kept working on it and, and pushing on it. It's just that football turned out to be a very, very challenging sport to simulate. Sure. Beyond the sports products, of course, in the very beginning, I created the uh, artist management function and ran it myself and hired and created the role of producer in the game industry and sort of hired and trained and supervised all of the producers uh, and made a lot of the early product deals. So when you, when you look at products like Archon or Mule, those are created by artists that I personally pursued, that I personally signed a contract. Same thing with Bill Budge with uh, Pinball Construction Set. 
and I was very intimately involved in those uh, artist relationships and the design of uh, those products and the, the marketing and bringing them to market. It's a lot of fun looking back on uh, some of those products because some of these artists are just the nicest people and it's definitely among my best career memories having the opportunity to work with uh, people like Danny Bunton and Bill Budge and Ann Westfall and John Freeman who created Archon and Archon 2 mm -hmm. and other games. Uh, I, I was uh, even deeper in, with my hands in the clay on Mule because basically I had played a uh, much older business simulation game that Bunton had done for SSI, and I'd actually been on the board of directors at SSI in the early 80s. And I basically wanted to make a, uh, a more video game-oriented business simulation. So I basically came up with the specifications for the game, and they invented the storyline and the theme around Mule. And then I wanted to include all the fundamental principles of economics. So I had to explain those principles uh, to the development team and, and then stay on top of the project to make sure that they were being delivered correctly. And I'm talking about things like the learning curve theory of production and economies of scale and various other principles like supply and demand and uh, what happens when you create a monopoly and you know, various, various other things that are all built into that game. And to this day, Mule is one of my favorite memories of the game. I wrote the manual for the game even. It's a heck of a great way to learn economics just to play that game. Yeah, I have to bust that out again. I know I have that on the wall there. It's amazing, uh, just looking back on that early library, uh, just how diverse and how many great titles are in there. You know what I think a lot of people don't remember, or maybe they never knew it, about EA, is that uh, you know, in the very beginning, because of the founding principles that I had come up with, I really wanted to invent a lot of new stuff and bring a lot of new stuff to market. So there was a tremendous amount of innovation and original thinking and and developing new game genres and new brands in the first 10 years of the company. And, of course, a lot of them became uh, defining products of various uh, genres. Mm -hmm. So you look at something yeah. like a pinball construction set, the idea of a construction set, that became a genre. Certainly EA Sports is a good example. I would say Populous is another example where you, know, you get into the idea of God games. Definitely. You know, there, there are just numerous examples uh, like that where we kind of blazed new trails and created uh, new categories for the industry that are still around today. Later on in that process, of course, uh, you know, we learned from uh, how, we, how we were able to develop the EA Sports business, how to leverage brand licenses. In later years, after EA built up a lot of distribution power and a lot of uh, technology to leverage, then it became practical for the company to go out and be the high bidder for big licenses like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and get the NFL exclusive and do more things of that nature. But there really was not much, much of that going on in the first 10 years. Right. So it, it had to rely on, uh, on other strengths and other innovations. Were you still at EA during Thrill Kill? No. I'm trying to gather some of those developers up because by today's standards, that's like nothing. But, of course, it got the kibosh then. So well, I you know, I'll tell you this. Uh, I'm, I do not believe in media censorship. I think it's both impractical and a violation of the Constitution. Mm. I'm a parent. I have four children. I think it's extremely important for parents to govern closely what media their children consume. And it's important for industries to be very honest with the public, particularly parents, mm. about what's in the media. I actually started sponsoring a 3DO product rating system before the ESRB came into existence. Okay. And something you may not be aware of is that I invented the E-rating. Oh, wow. It was a 3DO trademark, <laughs> and it was my idea to call it the E-E for everyone. Yeah. 
And later on, that trademark was sold to the ESRB. I see. Oh, wow. So I'm a big fan of having rating systems. I actually uh, am critical of the ESRB because I think sure. there are some extremely arbitrary and wrong-headed mm. views and outcomes in how they uh, rate things. So I think sometimes they give somebody an E that shouldn't be an E, and sometimes they'll give it a T when it should have been an E. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the presence of a rating system, that's a really important thing to have. Uh, it's better if the industry does it for itself than, yeah. than having it be sort of imposed government regulation. And then hopefully uh, they'll let the buyer beware and the buyer uh, knows what they're going to get. So I don't, I don't have any moral opposition to sophisticated adult content. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, you know, generally it's not really my, you know, I, I personally have no interest in being involved in making products that are offensive well, for the main purpose of being offensive, sure, but if it's... Yeah, you know, I, 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 um, I kind of, that's kind of where I draw the line. I don't mind making a product that appeals to one segment of users but not another segment. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't really personally have much of an interest in making things that are just flat-out offensive. Right, right. But, you know, I don't, I don't consider blood in and of itself offensive. I, I just I think that it can be handled uh, tastefully. I think it can be handled uh, realistically. And I certainly uh, enjoy movies like Inglorious Bastards, and I find games like Mortal Kombat amusing. I think I think Mortal Kombat is a comedy. I mean, it's it like is. slapstick. It's silly, right? Yes. So I, I really disagree with the politicians like Joe Lieberman that have come along and mm. said, said that if you play this game, it's going to make your child want to rip someone's spine out. <laughs> I don't buy that for a minute. No. And, and you know, it, it's it's silly. There There is so many levels of silliness I'm sure you've had to put up with through the years. But, yeah, self-regulation, I think that's that's always the way to go. Uh, and then if, if people feel that something's not regulated properly, they'll let the companies know about it with their dollar. Well, one of my favorite examples of that is uh, one of the first EA games was called Hard Hat Mac. And it was a platform game in which this guy's trying to build a construction project. And one of the bad guys, one of the enemies, if this enemy touched you, you would lose a life, was the OSHA inspector. (laughs) And in fact, it was a faithful treatment of the fact that, hey, this is one of the government compliance things that (laughs) is involved in construction. Mm. In my opinion, it was humorous, it was tasteful, and it was accurate. Definitely. Well, a local politician here on the peninsula decided that it would actually help them get reelected if they picked on this game about criticizing a government agency and making it sound like it was something horrible uh, to uh, make children have a bad image of a government agency. Yes. Now, I'm sure most children wouldn't even know what the heck it is. No. And Not until they have to start working in the factory. They got a news story uh, written about their criticism of this Hard at Mac video game. And, and then the media started calling around uh, local retailers saying, uh, you're not caring, you know, surely you're not offering this hideous game to the public, are you? <laughs> and really, it was just, it was like a witch hunt uh-huh. without without any basis in fact. Wow. It really taught me a lesson because the story got syndicated and picked up by 30 national major <laughs> metropolitan newspapers. It became a really big story. A lot of retailers banned this game. Oh, my god! It did not deserve to be banned at all. I mean, if you saw it right now, you'd think you got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, of course, the other funny thing is that then out of the woodwork, I got all this fan mail from... <laughs> American citizens around the country that cannot stand OSHA. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got I've, I've dealt with OSHA. I got books, I got humorous stories, I got all kinds of, of uh, heartfelt tales about people's frustration with OSHA. Mm, unbelievable. About when did you get out of EA and decide to start the 3DO company? First of all, there's an overlap between the two companies, so I, I was very oh, okay. involved in EA for about 12 years. 
and towards the end of that period, 3DO got started as a skunk works within EA because I was just looking at the industry situation and realizing that the hardware platforms were not progressing the way they needed to for there to be a good growth opportunity for the game developers. Mm-hmm. And I also recognized that the uh, most respected software companies like Microsoft, like Sega, like Nintendo, they all were great software companies, but they also had their hand in the platform side. Sure. So it did not seem crazy to me to have EA try to get more actively involved in breaking this logjam and getting the hardware to move forward. And I I wanted to push agendas like 3D graphics and optical disc media and networking. And, you know, at the time, it seemed like a practical thing for uh, the company to do. But, you know, as it kind of picked up speed and and momentum, I think there was a lot of sentiment uh, in the company that it would be something better served if it was in a separate company. I see. So it got spun out as a separate company that became uh, 3DO. And, and, you know, I think in hindsight, certainly it really helped EA that it got done. First of all, EA ended up making a huge amount of money from the stock in 3DO that they had that they sold. But what I think was even more important is that when companies like Sega and Sony came calling on EA and said, hey, EA, we want you to make a bunch of games for the PlayStation, EA basically said to them, well, you know, we're partners with 3DO. We own equity in 3DO. We have a really fabulous deal with 3DO. We don't have to pay very much as license fees with 3DO. We never paid a lot with license fees with the Sega Genesis. Mm-hmm. If you want our support, you're going to have to do something similar for us. Gotcha. So there was a period of, t- of several years there where there's no question that EA was able to get much, much better terms. So they had much more leverage to get better terms than anybody else in the industry. And since EA had been kind of a kingmaker helping make certain platforms be successful, I think when Sony came along, and Sony didn't have the kind of first-party game development that Nintendo and Sega were known for. Mm-hmm. So for Sony to enter the market, they really, I think, felt like they had to have EA as a partner. And, of course, this created uh, some competitive conflict between 3DO and EA. And ultimately, uh, that led to 3DO needing to be more responsible for solving its own first-party game software problem. Because I think, as you recognize, with a game platform, you have to have some unique first-party games that are only available on your platform in order to show people what your platform does and to distinguish it, right? Definitely. And it obviously wasn't going to distinguish 3DO if 3DO had Madden, but then PlayStation had Madden. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the first sign that in the long run this is not going to work out very well. But uh, in the end, uh, it's kind of an interesting story about two very large Japanese companies because I recruited many hardware companies to work with 3DO and to support 3DO. One of the ones that I think was interested but slipped through my fingers was Sony. Hmm. And the one that I created the most interest with was Matsushita. And these are companies that are very traditional rivals. And uh, ironically, at that point in time, Matsushita was hot and Sony was not. Okay. Sony had lost in the Betamax versus VHS video standards war with Matsushita. Sony was struggling with some of their other operating businesses and... Uh, and including the Hollywood companies they had acquired, like TriStar Pictures. Matsushita, on the other hand, was kind of at a peak where uh, their business was very strong, and they had made a successful acquisition of Universal Studios, and that was going really well. So Matsushita looked like the kind of entertainment conglomerate that could really be an exciting partner to have in the video game business. 
But frankly, uh, over a period of a few years, it became clear that Matsushita was really culturally a consumer electronics hardware company, and they never really adapted to what uh, requirements you have in the game industry, and they just weren't confident putting down a big enough bet, uh, whereas Sony came in and basically put $2 billion on the table and said, hey, we're going to go execute and do just about everything we can as comprehensively as we can, as well as we can, and we're going to bet very heavily. Mm-hmm. And it, it just tilted the table very quickly so that a lot of the software companies, uh, EA included, believed that they had to be on the PlayStation. I see. And were you aware of the talks between Nintendo and Sony for... Oh, I mean, yeah. Okay. Look, I was uh, kind of in the back. All these companies are talking to each other all the time. And, sure. and in fact, at 3DO, we convinced Apple and IBM to work together to make a, a processor chip for us. Okay. And we helped architect it. Because, in fact, a 3DO employee had been the architect of the PowerPC, the processor that had been used by Apple mm-hmm. and made by IBM. Sure. And lo and behold, that processor family later on shows up in Nintendo products. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, and in the game Matusha was the leading manufacturer of optical disk drives. So naturally, we knew they were in conversations with Nintendo about optical okay. disk drives. And sure enough, later on, uh, that happened. And we were having contact with all these companies all the time. And there were a lot of formative things going on at that point, including the formation of DVD. Because, you know, 3D was a pioneer in uh, digital video and... We were among the world leaders in video encode, decode technology as well, but clearly we were one of the first people to discover that you just could not do a movie on CD-ROM. You had to have a higher capacity optical disc, and it had to have a higher data transfer rate. We're sort of on the uh, bleeding edge of the R&D around this, and we're helping explain this to companies like Matsushita and Toshiba, and sure enough, they're the ones that ended up agreeing on the DVD standard. I see. And of course, that came along later. So out of the ashes of 3DO, I mean, in 3DO, you, you could just say that it was a noble idea that was just too far ahead of its time, you know, and, and it suffered from cost problems because we're using technologies that weren't quite cheap enough yet, and it didn't have a enough money behind it the way uh, the PlayStation did. And the PlayStation came along a couple years later when mm-hmm. some critical component costs had come down. They had the advantage of more advanced custom components, and Sony made a really big bet. Matsushita got scared of what Sony was doing, decided to back off. And again, it just kind of tilted the table in that direction. But a lot of the R&D and a lot of the market initiatives that 3DO set out to do, they became baked into what the industry did. In fact, uh, I've had executives from Sony tell me that they were liberally copying 3DO's business practices and copying our licensing program in lots of detail. And then what you see coming out of it later on is uh, standards like DVD that became a big success. And we even pioneered and built one of the first video-on-demand digital network systems, and of course that became common and popular later. We had uh, Noah Falstein on the show, and uh, he he had mentioned about the network capabilities of the 3DO, which was something I wasn't I, mean, I was well aware of the VCD capabilities. I I bought the VCD uh, plug-in for my 3DO, my Panasonic, and uh, I own legit legal <laughs> VCDs and everything else. And I've always loved the system. It's been one of my favorite systems throughout time, uh, probably because you know if you invest seven hundred dollars, you you want to like it, uh, as well as the. Fan- 
fantastic games that came out for it, no doubt about it. I mean, I have to, I have to correct you on one thing. You okay. didn't pay seven hundred dollars because I, yeah, this is one of the myths about three D. I was everybody picks on the launch price of seven hundred dollars. The effective launch price was six hundred dollars. At six hundred dollars, that's exactly so what it there was a published list price, but nobody went by the published list price. I mean, the, the everyday price from the beginning was five ninety nine. That's still too much. <laughs> but it's just it's just amusing how people ins- you know the the media wants to insist on getting the facts wrong about that. Mm. But you know whether it was six hundred or seven hundred doesn't really matter. It was too high. Well, I'll never forget the day when my my girlfriend at the time came home and she had both the the CDI and the three DO uh, under each arm. So that wow. was that was that's quite- one hell of a girlfriend. <laughs> we all need girlfriends like that. And and so that's that was definitely like somewhere around a twelve hundred dollar investment, no doubt about it. And I would my jaw hit the floor, but I had a good time and I played Crash and Burn for I don't know five or six months. And Noah was on there. And we you know chuckled about the launch, which didn't have as much software support as I'm sure you would have liked. Uh, Shelly devolves it to Bird to Life and Crash and Burn. <laughs> but I'll tell you, once... Yeah, it was pretty terrible, and, and obviously uh, we, we have to take the blame for not understanding how long it was going to take for really good games to be built for the platform and not doing enough ourselves. You know, again, we were pretty much relying on the third parties, and mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really clear about video game consoles is that you've got to have a serious first-party effort, and you have to be the one who establishes the value of the platform. We just did not do that. Obviously, uh, within a year of that launch, you're looking at products like Road Rash, which was a heck of a lot mm. of fun, and, Great and game. Madden, and you know, there's quite a few other uh, really good games. My, you know, one of my personal favorites was uh, that really adorable little uh, war game. Uh, Return Fire. Return Fire, yeah. Return Fire maybe is my all-time favorite 3D game. Fantastic. Of course, FIFA was a great game. Eventually, there was some vindication just demonstrating that, yeah, this is a good system and there's a lot of good games for it. And it was a, a riot. If you got you know six people together to play FIFA, that was a hell of a party. I mean, that was kind of like the Wii before the Wii. Yeah. Who came up with the concept of daisy-chaining your controllers together? I'm sure that idea had to have been Dave Needles. You know, I loved like, it. Uh, maybe maybe R.J. Michael, but you know, it sounds like I don't remember where that first uh, came from. Obviously, uh, I would have been talking from day one about wanting there to be multiple joysticks, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who would say, "Oh, let's daisy chain them." <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, uh, fantastic games. I mean, you have to remember, back in 1982, Mule was a four-player game. Oh, right, right. And I, I have always, always, always been a fan of social gaming and have always had a preference for multiple people playing a game at the same time and really having it be a social medium. It's one thing I glossed over, I forgot to touch on. Of course, EA had their own four-player adapter for the Genesis. Yeah, that was a tough sell, uh, getting that four-player thing to work and getting people interested. I, I think the Sega Genesis was great because it was such a effortless two-player machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. EA had some fantastic games for release on the 3DO. 1994, I remember saying that there will never be a football game that looks more realistic than Madden uh, <laughs> on the 3DO. And the nice thing about it was it wasn't named Madden 95, and of course there were no sequels, unfortunately, for that. But uh, So you mentioned some of your favorite. Some of my favorite games, I think, were definitely Twisted. Now, was that... Yeah, well, of course, that, that was uh, another one of my uh, personal projects. In a way, what I was trying to do with Twisted was make something uh, akin to Mule that would be much easier for a family to play together. You know, again, with Mule, I was interested in having four people play together. But in hindsight, you know, Mule is a gamer's game. Mm-hmm. And it requires a gamer's skill and, you know, understanding of gameplay depth 
to to really follow what's going on in Mule and really get into it. And it's kind of an abstract theme that you know a lot of people never really grasped. By contrast to Twisted, we I was saying, hey, let let's make a multiplayer game that anybody can play together. I mean, it was truly casual game thinking. You know, a decade before casual gaming became a term in the industry, and I wanted it to mimic a TV show and use simple puzzle solving and simple trivia and you know, have that kind of TV show theme. So, again, that was a case where uh, I was very heavily involved as, I guess you could call me the uh, originator of the game or the executive producer, and that was one of the reasons I hired Noah was to, uh, you know, complete the execution of that game. Oh, that's fantastic, because that, that seriously is probably one of my favorite game show games uh, ever created. I mean, that and Joker's Wild, but... And I think it holds up. It I, does? You, know, you, could play, you could play Twisted right now and not tell your family members or the kids playing it that it's on an old piece of hardware. Yep. And they would think, hey, this is really great. You know, and, and they'd say, hey, what system is that? And they go, uh, they'd probably guess it was on the Nintendo Wii. <laughs> <laughs> and it could could be, I guess, uh, once again. Hey, resurrect that, because I would like to see that. I also liked the uh, Battle Sport. I thought that was a very interesting game that I, I think I yeah. can still play as well. Right. And, of course, uh, that was obviously inspired by uh, the old vector graphic uh, tank game from Atari. Mm-hmm. hmm The 3DO name. Is it 3DO or 3D0? So it's 3DO. So the letter O. And okay. I'll, take, I'll take credit for the O because I basically said, look, I want to, uh, you know, there's audio, video, Nintendo. Ah. Uh, there, there are many other examples of successful media formats that end in the letter O and the O sound. Uh-huh. And I came up with some ideas uh, of what the prefix could be. But there's a guy named Rick Tom Payne who suggested 3D as the prefix gotcha gotcha oh okay so it's 3d and then and then the o ending sound and how about yeah. the symbol the the diamond the sword yeah, we, actually hired a, we hired a designer in san francisco who had done a lot of good early design work for apple and for ea and uh, basically i told him i was looking for something similar to the uh, three fundamental shapes that we had come up with for ea uh, you know it's kind of funny i really like that ea design that had the uh, scan lines going through it. In yep. fact, the, the guys that developed that, their, their, their view of it was, look, this is going to show up on a lot of TVs, and this is digital, <laughs> and this is kind of showing the idea of projecting the digital graphics on a video display and having scan lines uh, running through it, but having a three-dimensional quality. And the very first version of that at EA was drawn in such a way that the 3D aspect of the three shapes really stood out. Mm-hmm. And ironically, over the years, some of those details got trimmed out of it, and it started to look more flat. Yeah. And then at some point in the last decade, EA decided to dump it overboard and, and go with different iconography. Sure. I just still have a very strong emotional attachment to that very first version, and I, I miss it terribly. Yeah, I just really like the elegance of, uh, of that idea. We were shooting for something along those lines with uh, 3DO, and you know, the, uh, this designer uh, came up with those ideas. And if you think about the pieces of it, they were trying to get graphics that could actually, in fact, represent the 3, the D, and the O. So you got the number three, and then you've got a shape that looks like a TV screen, mm-hmm. and then you've got a three-dimensional object forcing uh, the the idea of three dimensions, oh, and gotcha. it's obviously an O shape. And then there's a shadow drawn underneath it to convey the idea of the extra realism of the platform. Of course, I think it's ironic when you look back on it. I'd say it's a, perhaps an overly complicated icon. And ironically, uh, it was fairly quickly surpassed in graphics power by products like the PlayStation. I love the 3DO. I still think it's a great platform. Can you tell us more about your ideas for getting this thing online? 
I have to say uh, what really kicked that off is that I was working with Bob Pittman at the time. And Bob was the founder of MTV and had gone on to uh, have a great career with uh, Time Warner. And he was on the board at EA. I got him involved with the 3DO project, and he ended up joining the uh, 3DO board, and Time Warner became a strategic investor. And he was pushing me with the idea that the 3DO should be a set-top box for cable TV and to take advantage of uh, digital media in the living room. And you want to talk about ideas that are ahead of their time. <laughs> Again, that was pretty far out there because here we are years later and we still don't really have a cable set-top box standard that has a lot of video game capability. Right. But there, but it should be, right? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to see how this is all going to play out because now you have products in the family room at home like the Wii, battling with the PlayStation, battling with the cable set-top box, battling with other products like Apple TV, mm-hmm. and you even have the mobile phones that same room, right? And some people are using their mobile phone to actually control some of their consumer electronics, et cetera. It's interesting that that's still a competitive question and there's still a lot of evolution because wouldn't it be nice if in your family room you had one box that really could do it all? Right now it's a real mumbo-jumbo still. Mm -hmm. I hope that we never get to that single one-stop shop, but uh, definitely uh, an amalgam of at least two or three competing companies I think would be good for me as a consumer. Yeah, you know, I'm not trying to push for there to be a monopoly or anything like that. I'm just looking at it from the point of view of the user experience. Ever since I first saw a computer, I realized that a lot of technical people don't understand that the public needs to have something be much simpler to use. And, and of course, for, for a long time, we had that reference point of the flashing 12 on the VCR. <laughs> and every product that has any memory in it, always there are too many features that people never understand, and they're trying to cram features into whatever the memory footprint allows. And, sure. and this is a problem with uh, every piece of consumer electronics, uh, every handheld device, every game, etc., and I, I just think that it's far more important to try to figure out how to make these things be so simple and straightforward to use that they become part of the everyday life experience that every human being has. Gotcha. And, gotcha. and that, that means they have to be less expensive, and it means that they have to be a really straightforward user experience. And I agree, and I think that systems like the Wii with their virtual console, uh, you could be playing your Wii games, you could be playing your GameCube games, and then you dump out into the virtual console and you're playing your old school, your 8-bit, your 16-bit, your VIC-20, whatever else they have on there, arcade games, WiiWare games, and it's all in one place. It makes a gaming experience a lot easier for the consumer. I really admire both uh, Nintendo and Apple for what they've done in the last five years because these are companies that look like they were painted into a corner and it's very very difficult and and history illustrates how hard it has been for large companies to innovate Mm -hmm. and the uh, innovation that came out of both of those companies and the impact that they both had in the game industry by using technology to promote social experiences and improving the user experience so that so that it's something that is more popular with a wider range of members of the public i mean it's just of incredible value yeah, when, when people ask me, well, why do you want to pay for a ROM of an old Genesis game when you own an old Genesis game or you own the old Turbo Graphics? And I said, well, if I could put it in my virtual console and it's all legit and I'm there, I'm playing games and I could jump out of there and play some, some of my older titles and it's all, you know, people are still getting their loot and that's, that's all good. And so I can see that happening little bits and we're, we're heading in those directions. But, uh, I mean, I've been an adopter of the XBMC. Now this is more on the, the underground, it's a gray area of an independent joint development by 
communities of programmers that wanted something like that to happen. And it is a, it is more of an interface to, I could do radio, I could do television, I can do some of my uh, video games and things like this all in one easy to operate interface, but not easy to set up, <laughs> not for the consumer, yeah, exactly. you know. Exactly. So, but uh, let's move on to where you saw, I don't know how you thought of this. You go from gigantic to something that could have been even more monumental, big, 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 you're going up big, and then to the small. Yeah, well, it's a, it's an exciting uh, thing going on in the last 10 years that so much electronics power can be a device you can hold in your hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm obviously not the only person who thought it would be interesting to, to bring games to uh, mobile phones, etc. But I do have a history of kind of being out on the leading edge of new media and, you know, and in trying to figure out, uh, well, what, what can this new medium do and how does it distinguish itself from other media? And I recognized uh, very early that the mobile phone was really the social computer and that in the long run it was going to be a lot more than just a uh, voice device. And it's quite gratifying just to see the uh, evolution of the industry over the last uh, several years. I mean, obviously, uh, Japan, 10 years ago, Docomo introduced the first computerized phone, uh, also known as a data phone, and started to have spectacular success. But phone companies in the Western world did not really copy the business principles of Docomo. Right. And they kind of got lost in the weeds there for a while. And it, and it took something like the iPhone to come in to remind people of some of the principles that had worked with Docomo. And of course, Apple combined that with a very nice uh, device with a very nice uh, user experience. And what we're now experiencing in the West is the explosion of the mobile web, where a lot of the principles of the web that we've seen explode in broadband to the PC, you know, where you've, you've uh, had these innovative new companies like Google and Facebook and MySpace and YouTube, et cetera, and you've seen all this growth and all this new behavior by consumers around the web. That's very much the way it is in Japan and also in Korea, because in Korea they did copy what happened in Japan. But in the West, it had remained kind of bottled up, mm-hmm. and you know, things hadn't really uh, moved forward. And, and then the iPhone kind of came in as a very disruptive influence that has stimulated and motivated a lot of change in the West. So we're, we're now at this tipping point where there are going to be a few more billion devices like iPhones sold in the Western world in the next three, four years. And it's going to be a very different place where a lot of the behavior you now see on the web will shift over to uh, mobile devices. And it's nice to see Digital Chocolate, your new company, has a head start on some of the other uh, companies. And for me, of course, as a consumer, I'm looking more at the quality of the titles. You've had some years to get them together. And one of my favorite titles, which I mentioned on last show, and I'm glad that you're making it into the Xbox Arcade and whatnot, is one of the very innovative, fun action puzzle titles, the Tower Blocks. Even though it has two X's at the end, I still like this game. Yeah, well, you know, what's interesting is that even before the iPhone, we were enamored of uh, certain ideas about what we thought would make a great mobile game. And we, we thought, well, our slogan is, seize the minute. Yes. And we know that the people that are mobile, they're, they're busy, they've got these little slices of time, they want to do something that occupies them, and it's fun, but they also are maybe trying to connect with other people. And so we, we kind of already understood principles of uh, social media, we understood that a product uh, should be really simple to learn how to play, that, that, that there should be a short play session, that you want to have basically one-touch operation. So we were already building 
great game mechanics to go with that because, of course, if you don't have a lot of computing power in a mobile phone, say, four or five years ago, you have to have a great game mechanic, and it has to be really well-polished because you don't have a lot of graphics. You don't have a lot of sound. So that's where great games like Tower Blocks were forged. And, you know, we also became a legitimate technology company. We realized that in the long run, we would be much better at making consistent, high-quality games and getting them on a lot more devices and platforms if we leveraged a technology model the same way that a company like Pixar has done in the film business. So we think of ourselves as the Pixar of mobile games. And it's been very gratifying as we've moved to more platforms in the last couple of years. Uh, we've had a lot of success on the iPhone. We've had a lot of success on the web. And now uh, Tower Blocks is, uh, is on uh, the Xbox Live. And I, I think that just demonstrates that games like Tower Blocks or Roller Coaster Rush or Crazy Penguin Catapult, these are all products that have ranked number one on the Apple App Store that had been around for a while on older mobile phones, and yet they had, they adapted really well to the iPhone and have been very popular and are obviously great game mechanics, even for an advanced technology product like the Xbox. I also noticed they all can tie in with social networking, and I also like the fact that you have the demos, or as they're called in the, the App Store, free versions for your iPhone title so you can try those out. That's right. And, of course, uh, you know, similarly, Tower Blocks uh, was a big hit on Facebook, and you know, that's really kind of the next frontier for us is to evolve uh, as a supplier of social games. And Tower Blocks has some social features on Facebook, but we don't consider it to be a complete social game. The industry trend for social games is that, yes, they need to be able to leverage platforms like Facebook, and they need to have a lot of social plumbing. But to really be an effective social game from a commercial standpoint, you've got to motivate players to get to a level of engagement where they're spending money. Mm. <laughs> and you know, the key there is to have a gameplay style where there are virtual items and virtual mm -hmm. currencies and customers are trying to enhance their competitive position as well as their style and their status in the social world of the game. Tower Blocks was not designed with that in mind. Sure. So we're now uh, building a, a bunch of new social games that are specifically designed as social games for platforms like Facebook. In fact, we're about to uh, launch the first couple of those. Fantastic. And I'm really happy as well that Tower Blocks, uh, on my iPhone, I was expecting like a flash version, a flat, very flat version on my iPhone, but it actually had some well-done 3D in it. And I think you can look at any, any platform and you, you have to figure out, well, what does it do well? Mm -hmm. And recognize that you can make a great game with any kind of technology if you match it up correctly. And I just took my family a few days ago to see the Disney film, The Princess and the Frog. Mm -hmm. And that's a somewhat more conventional-looking cell animation film, and it's a great movie. And it just kind of underscores the fact that you don't have to be doing all digital animation and swooping around with a lot of 3D special effects to make a great animated film. In fact, I had also taken my family to see Disney's A Christmas Carol a couple of weeks ago, and it was terrible. <laughs> oh, okay, good to know. And that was, a, that was a movie in 3D, and you had to wear the 3D glasses, and they kind of forgot about the story in the process of uh, having you fly around the city and you know see all the spectacular uh, visual effects. Yeah, that, that's kind of the way we look at it is that uh, Telebox, actually, there's a, there's a 2D version, there's a 3D version, and you can get into arguments with people about which one is better. But we certainly feel in both cases that, same with Roller Coaster Rush, there are 2D and 3D versions. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. 
we think the 3D versions are great for what they are. We think the 2D versions are great for what they are. Very good. And you know what it really brought to mind? I'd love to see uh, gritters brought over to the iPhone. I don't know who came up with the gritters uh, for the 3DO. That was one of my other favorite titles as well. That's well, funny. I, I don't remember that one that well. Uh, Tetragon. Tetragon, I think. Okay. I think it goes for like $300 or something on eBay because it was... Uh, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and in fact... Well, you know, I, that, that, I think there was a lot of good original thinking mm. in the past in the game industry, and uh, game developers are are smart when they fish around in the past to to see what was done previously that sure. could be updated or, or reinvented. Definitely. And I, in fact, I think that there was a demo disc, you know, as 3DO used to uh, put out some demo sure. discs. That's uh, right. And I, I own three magazine. Every now and then I go back and look at my three magazine for uh, the 3DO enthusiasts. And I think that demo disc is even worth like $100 or something just because it has a few levels of this gritters. Well, um, see, when you, when you have a platform that fails, it means that there are fewer copies of <laughs> things I, around, so that must enhance their value as collectibles. That's kind of ironic. Yes, yeah, it's it's sad that it all comes too late. What's new for the future? So you mentioned that. Anything else that you could talk about? Or yeah, well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing with what we're doing with social games. That mm-hmm. is called MMA Pro Fighter. It's a mixed martial arts game that is kind of in the style of I guess you could say it's a little bit like Pokemon Stadium, where you're basically developing your fighter. And you get to decide what they look like, kind of like an avatar. But then you have uh, all these different uh, styles of fighting that you can learn and train in. And you have a coach that's giving you advice on training techniques and how to build up your stamina. And then also different moves that you can learn. And then uh, you're basically able to play with your friends or with uh, other people on the uh, leaderboard. You know, basically build up the one-loss record of your fighter and enhance him in a variety of ways with different accessories and, and rankings and so on. And it's a very, very simple, fun game. I've been, I've been playing it here as we're uh, kind of debugging and getting uh, ready for the launch. And it's, uh, you know, it's kind of exciting because mixed martial arts is a, it's a new area of sports that's gaining in popularity, but there haven't really been uh, many video games about it. Especially nothing like that where you got to catch them all, catch them all the holds. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just building on the Pokemon uh, reference, a uh, bigger project uh, that I'm much more uh, personally up to my elbows in is this thing called the Nanostars. You might have uh, read about it. I gave a keynote speech a couple months ago where I introduced this idea. It's an old idea of mine that's been around for a long time and it has not yet been brought to market in any commercial form. But basically the idea is uh, why not have a virtual item that has more personality and character to it like a Pokemon, you know, instead of it just being a lifeless object like a gun or a sword. And why not have that virtual item that has all that personality be able to go into more than one game and turn into more than one thing in the context of those different games or apps. The idea of Nanostars is a little bit like Pokemon for grown-ups in that these are characters that have a lot of uh, humor and pathos and cultural references that will be appealing to older customers while also still being fun for kids. I I suppose you could say it has the sensibility of something like Shrek in its ability to appeal to all ages. And then from a gameplay standpoint, this idea for me was originally inspired by the trading card games like uh, Magic the Gathering. Mm -hmm. Sure. So one of the first games in this uh, platform is called Nanoverse Castles. And these nanostar characters, uh, they're basically uh, from a parallel universe that's the size of nanotechnology. And we call that the nanoverse. 
this first game called uh, Nano vs. Castles basically is a, a trading card game for the rest of us. And I, I don't know about you, but I've played all the trading card games and found them all to be kind of Byzantine and arbitrarily complicated. <laughs> Indeed. And quite a few of them, in my opinion, didn't develop a good backstory and didn't really do a good job of breathing emotional life into the cards or the characters. And a lot of them just didn't even have characters. Definitely. And I, I always uh, admired the way Pokemon had a great story and fantastic characters, and you cared much more about uh, the uh, the games as a result. But then there again, even you know, in that case, the card game uh, was not that good, in my opinion. And again, I'm just looking for something that's uh, social and looking for something that can be enjoyed by everybody. I've spent a lifetime as a gamer where I've wanted to play with other people, and I've wanted to play games that. I enjoyed for their sophistication, but they had to be games that were accessible to my friends and family members that maybe didn't want to get into it as deep as me. And that's always a challenge, I think, for uh, serious gamers. And you saw a lot of serious gamers ended up getting a Nintendo Wii or Guitar Hero because they had to dumb down their game experience in order to get more of their friends to play, mm. right? Sure. So that's kind of how I think about social gaming is, is that if you're somebody that enjoyed playing a trading card game at any time in your past then here's a trading card game that you're going to enjoy, and you're going to develop sophisticated strategies in how you play it. But it is a brain-dead simple game to learn how to play, and pretty much anybody that you know, anybody that's a friend or a family member, you can teach them how to play this game in about three minutes. Wow. And then it just kind of grows in layers of sophistication, and if you're the kind of player that wants to know about that and wants to exploit it, you'll be all over it. But for a kid or, or for a more casual gamer, they don't have to, to do that in order to have a good time. And it's, a, and it's kind of leveraging people's familiarity with conventional card decks. So when you play Nanoverse Castles, you basically have a castle, and your opponent has a castle. And you're each dealt four cards from a regular 52-card deck. And then on your turn, you get to draw a new card. And what you're trying to do is improve the scores of those four cards. So the perfect score for you would be four kings. Gotcha. And then the nanostars are kind of like extra wild cards or special effects or power-ups or modifiers, depending on what lingo you want to use. Mm -hmm. And you can draw those from the deck that you created from your nanostars and play those to have an effect on your castle or your opponent's castle. And it only takes about five or six minutes to play a game. So you can play oh. several games in succession, or you can play just one game if that's all you have time for. Wow, I, I already understand already, and I still can't understand magic. That's, I mean, I can look at those instructions again and again and again. I still have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I feel, <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. So, again, I'm, what I'm trying to do here, it's, it's not unlike what I've tried to do my entire career, and I was trying to do it back with games like Twisted and Mule before that. It's, it's that principle that I've always had of great games being simple, hot, and deep. Mm-hmm. If, mm. they're, if they're simple enough to get into, then anybody can give them a try. And if, and if they're hot, that means something happens that engages people. And then for the uh, serious gamer, the hardcore gamer, there's depth, and they can go deeper, but not everybody has to. And I've actually always personally enjoyed games that have a certain amount of luck involved, because when you have people of different abilities playing, mm. sure, I'm going to enjoy it when I execute my skills and strategies. And when I win the game, I'm going to pat myself on the back and say, yeah, hey, uh, I really use my skills. On the other hand, if I lose, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, I had bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> sure, right, right. And if you think about it, if you're playing against a friend who, 
So let's just say that they're much less skilled than you are. In order to engage them, the luck is important to allow them to win occasionally and get sure. some positive reinforcement. Otherwise, they're going to feel like every time they play, they're likely to lose, and then they're going to want to stop playing. So this is just a very important thing that's got to be baked into it. We think this Nano vs. Castles game has that, and uh, I have not been this intimately involved in game design since Madden. Wow. That's great. This one's very much my baby. There are, Fantastic. There are times when I'm working on this thing where uh, I get scared to death of making decisions because <laughs> at a personal level, you know that you're going to make a decision that's either going to help make people like it or hate it. So I'm, I'm very much uh, up to my elbows in it right now. Well, I think those three principles that you outlined, I think, boy, you can't lose with that. In fact, even if you hit two of those three, I think you got a hit on your hands. But well, again, the concept here is to is go beyond one game. So I talked about the trading card-style mm. game. That's the first game to help kind of establish the idea of these collectible nanostars. But we have a tower defense game in development that's going to use them. We have a uh, series of other games that will we'll also use them. So we'll have a variety of different games in different genres. Uh, that are compatible with the Nanostar system. That sounds amazing. And you know, what the customer only has to buy a Nanostar once, then basically they can use it in all the games as the games become available. Gotcha, gotcha. Trip Hawkins, thank you very much for joining us on We Talk Games. It's been an incredible pleasure. I hope that you join us again in the future, and I guess I'll see you in the Nanoverse. And I hope uh, everybody has had some happy holidays. Right on. Thanks, pal. Okay. Bye. God bless. Bye. Wow, Trip Hawkins, digitalchocolate.com. There he is, right on the Digital Chocolate website. And you know what's really, really cool about games like Tower Blocks and just about every game I played on the iPhone is that when you get to the high score screen, your score gets matched up against the designers for Digital Chocolate, the electricians, people that just are passing by, the delivery man, and then, of course, Trip himself. So as you know, a lot of these iPhone games have limited replayability. You just aren't motivated enough to go back and play these titles. But now you are, because you want to beat Trip Hawkins in all these games. All right, Keith, are they queued up? This is a first ever, the meeting of the We Talk Games Mega Council of Video Game Google Plexinaires. Open it up, Keith. Mega Council powers activate. Wiggly, forming legs and knees. I'm Ralph, and I'm forming the Spear of Destiny. <laughs> okay. 2 pi R forming the right arm and knuckles. Kyle Von Kubik, I'll form the club foot and leg warmers. Johnny Capcom, forming shapely crotch. <laughs> Eric Alex, and I'll form the head. Harness. Very good. Perfect. <laughs> I'll say it for you. All right. Hey, welcome to the first annual meeting of the Mega Council. And by annual, I mean this will happen whenever we need to make up some showtime. <laughs> and today's Mega Council will be a little bit different than the previous Mega Councils in that it will be, number one, it will be the first Mega Council we've ever had. And number two, we will each bring our own bit of gaming questionology to the video game roundtable. And I will begin. Okay, the first question to the Mega Council is, they've released the Sega Genesis. When will we see the Sega Leviticus or the Sega Second Timothy? <laughs> I think the Sega Genesis has to beget those or something. Doesn't I it? see. Yeah. Right. No, here's my real question. Let's take a look at video games, shall we? I think that's what we do normally. Okay, very good. And let us begin with looking at the game, games like 1943. 
I think that Battlefield 1943 is a perfect example of this type of war game where everybody gets involved and shoots at each other and can do different tasks and things like this. And I know that, Ralph, I know that you are a big fan of the Call of Duty and the Space Marines and the things like this where you gang up against other people or you're part of a team or individuals. Uh, I so do you, like ganging up against people. Yes. Very good. <laughs> and, and so these, these games are pretty popular. And I really think, you know, I've played a lot of games, and I don't know how everybody feels about this, but I think that 1943 is probably the easiest to jump into. And I think it's, for me, it's the least stressful. Like, I will get stressed if I play a game that I don't think controls well or isn't well balanced. But I, I think somehow 1943 Battlefield really has a great balance as far as keeping me coming back and not getting me pissed off. There are people that sit on there and they, they snipe at you uh, when you're in your respawning zone and things like this, but not as much as I've seen in other games. In other games, I really get frustrated. Sure. But let's take a look at 1943 and that play mechanic. Why isn't this exploding? Like, we had the perfect opportunity for a summer movie blockbuster tie-in with G.I. Joe. Can you imagine... If you could get in a hiss and ride a hiss, I mean, I know this probably sounds incredibly marky for me and maybe childlike, but wouldn't it be amazing to be able to be part of Cobra and you scream Cobra la 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 and all that business and uh, all the different vehicles and it's custom made for this 1943 battlefield type of environment. I think every movie should come out with maybe a pinball version of the game. <laughs> you know, like when Street Fighter 2 came out, you had a pinball version of that when uh, the or the re-release of Street Fighter 2 and even Rocky and Bullwinkle. I have no idea why Rocky and Bullwinkle as a franchise would get a pinball table, but it did. So I think it would be really neat if we had like these games that are adaptable to different movies or different popular trends or things like this. I just thought, man, if I could play Battlefield as G.I. Joe, this would take this game up to the next level for me as a, as a fan of old G.I. Joe. And, and it wouldn't break it because you don't have bad actors ruining your imaginary visions of these characters. From parts known but not discussed, Ralph! <laughs> I'm not really fluent in the 1943 game so much, right. but I have seen it being played. I just think that you could put anything into there, and it seemed like it would be it would, it would work. But it seems like the gameplay is a little like with Modern Warfare and stuff. The gameplay is really fast. With those kind of games, you kind of kind of like got to get set up, or you got to run and try to find the battle. Actually, so I don't know if uh, I don't know if I'm really even answering the question right. But uh, I don't know if it would be uh, it would have so much success. It would only be for that niche market for people who actually like the game, and then you got to find people who like the comic book mm -hmm. and get those people together. You know, so, you weren't a big GI Joe fan. I was a big fan of the of the cartoon, but when the cartoon was on, you know, I was really young, mm. so I don't really remember it as as good as I should. Right on. So I wasn't like a, a um, diehard fan. I remember watching it waking up before school and stuff like that. But um, I do think you could put any characters in there and it would bring whatever that market is to that game, you know? You could put Pokemon in there, have 1942 Pokemon, and then all the <laughs> Pokemon would use your Pokemon on people and stuff like that. I don't, uh, I'm not really uh, big on the game, so I, I'm like the least uh, favorable person to be answering the question. Right on, right on. Uh, Colgate Invisible Shield, 2 pi R, your thoughts. 
I just want to make one quick technical point, which is that if you're going to talk about adapting G.I. Joe specifically, you're probably better off to use Call of Duty Modern Warfare as your engine than Battlefield because the one of the hallmarks of G.I. Joe throughout all of its incarnations has been that the technology that they're using is always just a little bit ahead of what is the current technology. Gotcha. Where, you know, the whole the whole atmosphere of Battlefield 1943 is specifically let's recreate World War II. So for G.I. Joe, that might not necessarily be the best engine. Now, with that being said, what you're talking about really is less about creating a game and more about creating a flexible engine that can be adapted to whatever intellectual property you want to put into it, uh, which the way the industry is currently set up could kind of be a game changer. I know that I'm going to start sounding like an apologist for uh, WWE, you know, SmackDown versus Raw 2010 here. Uh, but if you go out into that and start looking at things that people have created that you can download, you know, if you wanted to have a X-Men versus S.H.I.E.L.D. team wrestling match, there's 25 or 30 comic book characters you can download. Wow. If you wanted to have Star Wars wrestling match, you can download Luke, you can download Leah, you can download Darth Vader. I mean, there are platforms that allow users to create their own IPs and kind of insert it into it. I think the number one thing holding up development of something like that right now is that there's no really directly obvious business model. As DLC and people's acceptance of DLC starts to increase over the years, that might change. It might be viable to just put out a platform and then pay 10 bucks and now you're fighting as G.I. Joe, pay 10 more bucks and now you're fighting as Star Wars. Sure. Uh, but I, I don't really see anything like that in the immediate future. Very good. Were you a fan of G.I. Joe? I watched the cartoon when I was a kid. I didn't buy the comic books and I didn't own any of the action figures. Uh, but part of that was I grew up in a middle class neighborhood. And so, like, the guy across the street was the guy who was the designated G.I. Joe guy. I was the designated Transformers guy. And we would always just play with whatever was at whoever's house. So I was a uh, equal opportunity 80s icon, you might say. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Five lucky bolts of lightning, Kyle Von Kubik. I'm going to continue to grapple this topic uh, much the, the way that Tupai R did with saying that, yes, we've seen bits and pieces of this where there's uh, I don't want to say an empty shell, but a game that's there, and then we dump things into it. I'm thinking about I think the game's called Pain. What's the <laughs> game where you flip the, the celebrities? Uh, yeah, that's Pain. Okay, now, n- not a great example of a great game, but it's a good example of a game that it has an engine mm-hmm. that's being used, and you're dumping different things into it. Another game I'm thinking of when you're talking about this is um, Zen Pinball, like you said, with the Street Fighter table, sure. where you can have the set engine there, and then you dump new content into it via DLC. I think... Yes, I agree. That would be a game changer. That would bring it to a whole different level. But there would have to be certain games for certain franchises. I mean, I remember back to the days of Warcraft, the uh, just the first one. Or maybe it was Warcraft 2. And there was a whole community of developers who were trying to put together a game based off that engine that was exclusively Star Wars characters. Because at the time, what was it, Battlefield or Battlegrounds? What came out later that was pretty much Warcraft with Star Wars characters? Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds, which was actually based on the Age of Empires engine. Okay, it was based off the Age of Empires engine, but nevertheless, it was a strategy game Mm -hmm. uh, similar to that. Now, this was many years before that game ever came out. In fact, I don't think Age of Empires came out when they were working on this, but that's a wonderful idea that if a developer could come up with a type of game engine that could be used in many different applications with licensing, it'd be very interesting to see 
DLC come down where you could just, I guess, change the costume of the entire game. And yes, we have seen a lot of that with the creator wrestlers. Little Big Planet's another example where you're seeing people create things. Like I saw a Galaga game made on Little Big Planet. Right. Amazing. But right now it's at the level of the user doing it. It would be interesting to see the developer do it. The developer having the stage and then constantly changing the pieces on the stage. Right on, right I on. I answered that correctly. Huh? Yeah, that was a great answer. Blipverts, Jeff Hardy Beard, Rebus Tape Enthusiast, Johnny Capcom, your thoughts? You know, Wiggly, I just want to say, first of all, that I love the uh, the 1940s game. You know, I mean, flipping the plane around, that's brilliant. Uh, you're going up the screen, shooting the things. That's It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> okay. Yes, your aircraft will do cartwheels against the sides of the canyon walls. <laughs> Wrong 1943s. Go. Uh, 1940. Uh, well, I've never played the other one. That's why I had to. <laughs> well, it was like only five dollars the other day. That is an interesting topic, though, to uh, Im- to implant uh, things. And I was going to bring up uh, Little Big Planet. And one thing that did happen, as far as I know, was uh, Little Big Planet had a Metal Gear Solid Four like official patch thing or something, where uh, you could buy buy like a uh, proper levels with proper music and stuff like that. And uh, as you were talking about the Star Wars. Galactic Battleground. There was also a Star Trek one called Star Trek Away Team, where you used four characters, kind of like the Lost Vikings, where each of them had a separate ability. Okay. And you used it in the Age of Empires kind of isometric top-down type of deal, where you go and solve puzzles and then fight little battles and whatever. And I always dig it when it's done properly like that. I mean, I would have loved to have seen like a say like a Contra game, but with like a, be like the characters from Commando or something, you know. Mm-hmm. Very popular characters, the Commando people. Yeah, Bennett and John Matrix. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, wow. <laughs> and uh, the guy from Valverde's. But, uh, With yeah, DLC, I, though, you can do things like that. You can be very niche, you know? Sure. No, totally. And, I mean, I, I, you know, listen, I, di- I, I dig the idea, and I really, I'd like to see it happen, you know? I mean, I always like playing as my favorite little guy's in something else. I mean, I, I mean, would I play, run out and play a Super Puzzle Fighter if it didn't have Ken and Ryu and all in it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You sure. know? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think, uh, I don't think anybody would play Puzzle Fighters because it's just, it's just the same, it's just the same mechanic as Tetris and Dr. Mario and all those other puzzle games. Yeah. But, you know, it has that aspect of Street Fighter so it's going to bring most of the people that play Street Fighter. I don't think anybody that doesn't like Street Fighter likes Puzzle Fighter. You know, my girlfriend hates Street Fighter and she loves Super Super Puzzle. Really? Fighter. Wow. Yes, there you go. I stand corrected. All right. Shut down. Oh, anybody who likes Tetris <laughs> is going to like Super Puzzle Fighter. You know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The copyright law says that you can copyright the look of a game, but you can't copyright the concept of it. That's why there's eighty-seven bazillion different versions of Pac-Man. Mm. You know, so the joy of combining a established game with somebody else's IP is that now you've got two potential audiences, people that like the IP that you're plugging in and people that like the game that you're basing it on. So should there be a G.I. Joe Pac-Man? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's not even a question. <laughs> I can't even picture that. <laughs> well, I, I mention it almost every show. The PC Engine version of Batman was Pac-Man and with Batman as the Pac. Speaking of the official head harness to the stars, Eric Alex, your thoughts? Well, I think you're probably not going to see sort of this modular game anytime in the future. The, the developers have to pay licensing fees for all these different licenses. 
So looking to the user content is the way to go if you're looking for this kind of content. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, but, uh, Okay. <laughs> I guess I'm the only. I guess I'm the only one that marked out Excellent for. Excellent point, sir. Yeah. I, I just I, when I was playing 1943, I was like, man, if I could be rolling out in one of these vertical takeoff and landing Cobra planes, this would just be so awesome. And of course, now the new what's a new Battlefield coming out? Oh, and is it's, Battlefield Earth coming out on Blu-ray? Oh my god! <laughs> wow. Yes. High won't. definition turtle. That's what it's all about. Bad, Bad company. company. So. See, I was going to mention it, but I thought you meant uh, in the like the 1940 style. No, it, no, it's Battlefield Bad Company. It's more in the modern vehicles with Humvees instead of the Jeeps and whatnot. And mm-hmm. I thought, man, you know, this would be so easy to just blow in some models of all the G.I. Joe tanks and things. Because I'm sure they still have some models left over from that movie. They could just, yeah. you know, <laughs> blow these on really in here. I think after that movie that G.I. Joe is a real viable franchise that they're going to, you know, lead developers for? Or? Well, here's the well, thing. I yeah, think, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's been around yeah, forever. It's still Hasbro, right? They still want to push those toys. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's toys, it's comic books. You know, there's still comic books coming out for G.I. Joe. That's a thought, that's, though, because Hasbro is, uh, is... Are they still together with Atari? I know they were for a while. Mm. I don't know. Together with Atari is that they own Atari. Well, okay, they own Atari. But what I'm saying is a company like Hasbro could do something like put this game together, which is a stage, and then they have all these different franchises that you could dump into that stage. Hasbro's never been all that big on licensing their stuff, though. Even within their companies, I mean, they own uh, Wizards of the Coast, and yet there's never been a G.I. Joe role-playing game or anything like that. But Hasbro has just teamed up with EA, who is behind these battlefields, uh, for their release of the Mr. Potato Head's Family Night. (laughs) (laughs) I would like a first-person shooter with a bunch of Mr. Potato Heads running around. There you go! I would buy that. (laughs) That would be completely rad. If you shot a guy, his nose would fly off. Oh my god, Eric, you are onto something. I love it. (laughs) That's amazing. This this is what I wanted to talk about. And if you wanted to become somebody else, you just pull, you know, the the demolition experts out of your butt and stick it on your head. There you go. (laughs) Fat princess and kid chameleon. You can keep changing it up. Fantastic. This is, the, this is the best game idea ever. <laughs> and it keeps rolling. Now, speaking of rolling, Ralph, what are you bringing to today's Mega Council? Well, um, since I'm such a hardcore like gamer... Is that what um, you call yourself? Yeah, yeah myself. <laughs> I'm a really hardcore gamer. And I, um, I kind of have this, you know lull for casual gamers like people that just play games just on the fly or just the whole industry of casual gaming mm-hmm. and um do you think that microsoft and sony are just late to this casual party microsoft is coming out with some tall and ps3 has their their like hand wand thingy like their bow i don't know what their thing is called their magic stick i don't know what it's called but um <laughs> whatever it is i just think that they're just really late to the party and i think they could be focusing on making their system better by not going to this casual market i know it's a big boom and there's millions of dollars out there for it Mm -hmm. but um it just seems like they're just uh you know well they're blatantly copying off nintendo when it seems like this whole casual thing is starting to die so do you think this the whole casual gaming thing is going to start to die i think that uh, you know the bottom line is making money 
And as I, with anything, sure. But I think that I'm going to have to default to two pi r because I think he's closest to the industry. But before I bow out, I just need to say that, yeah, to me, the Natal and the body control, um, I, I, I'm dying for this to come out because. I would love to say this is going to be a huge failure and not really going to work properly. And I've seen things like, you're in the movies. And I've seen how I can't even key myself out if I have a green screen in back of me uh, <laughs> using their camera. So I know that that existing technology is not there yet. And, of course, trying to play catch-up to something that has become such a juggernaut like the Wii or even like the iPod, which is completely different, but it's mm-hmm. the same type of head start juggernaut synonymous with the name portable phone gaming, the I, the iPhone. There's really nothing that competes to it, even though big companies with a lot of money behind it are trying to eclipse that or do as well as that or tap into that, to that money. Microsoft um, says hello. Oh, they, <laughs> they they came out with the uh, the Zune. Is that what it? With, right, which was just supposed to be you know going against the uh, iPod. And, sure. and I say, do not want. <laughs> yeah, and it's failing miserably. As we, you can hear the the money they're losing right now. Well, I think any, anyone that tried to make the next the next Sony Walkman, anyone that tried to do that didn't do so well but they they got a little bit of money they've got a little bit back on their investment uh so you're right they may be a little bit too late to catch in on that but hopefully this will take us in a new direction i know that the sony interactive thing sony's you know they've toyed with this they haven't put it in the front of anything uh freaking the eye of judgment came out is that what it was called the eye judgment yeah it was the eye of judgment and and i have that card game i've yet to crack the pack but i just thought it was so novel and that's what it is a novelty that i i had to get it and that's how I bought my camera on the cheap with that Eye of Judgment pack. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, will it just be a gimmick and, and fade away? Well, the Wii's still around and it's still popular and it's coming out with more interesting things uh, every every day. This this uh, Shattered Memories far exceeded my expectations for it already, uh, the Silent Hill Shattered Memories on the Wii. So um, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is... This is a pretty interesting time, uh, but what do you, what do you think about that two pi r? Uh, well, if you want to talk about Microsoft or Sony going after the casual market, keep in mind that in any given year, more people play Solitaire on Windows than any other electronic game that exists. <laughs> sure. So Microsoft pretty much already owns the casual market. If you want to go to that extreme, um, <laughs> the casual market is never going to die. The casual market is different than the hardcore market. The hardcore market goes up and down and follows the flavor of the month. The casual market is made up mostly of people who have computers for other reasons, and then when they're done doing their work, they've got 20 minutes they want to kill. There's nothing on TV, so they just open up Diner Dash or whatever. As long as those people exist, which is basically going to be as long as we follow the current post-industrialization economy that we follow, that market isn't going to go away. Now, you talk about Sony and Microsoft playing catch-up to the Wii. Uh, The the 6-axis controller technically had uh, motion control at the debut of the PlayStation 3 console. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was horribly implemented, and there were no games out there that really took advantage of it, and so it quickly became a gimmick and and passed away as soon as uh, the the DualShock came back. Sure. What are you Uh, talking about? How else would I turn that wheel in Killzone 2? How would I do that? In the Go Sports series. Yeah, that was just fantastic implements. Of, no, it wasn't. He did say they were broken when they came out. Yeah, as evidenced by the active user base online today. Uh, 
But motion control is less about capturing the casual market and is more about the next direction of innovation that it makes sense to take a console. I hope because so. we're at the point with both the PS3 and the 360 that there's so much processing power packed into these boxes, so much graphics capability, so much particles you can generate in a frame. We haven't seen games that even scratch the surface of what these systems can do. So making a more powerful system next year because that's the, the business cycle doesn't make any sense. Who's going to buy a more powerful version of the PS3 when the games that they have for the PS3 they already own don't even exploit the system's full power, and half the people that own it don't even have an HDTV anyway? Mm. Motion control gives the industry a direction where they can go, where they can truly be innovative, where they can truly offer new features, and you know, as you said, Wiggly, it's all about the money, new things for people to buy in a way that makes more sense to how people are playing games now than just cramming more power mm. into the box they already own. Hey, I, I'm a prime example of that. I in the other room, I have the DJ Hero controller. You know, mm, there's a mm. sucker born every minute. Uh, <laughs> man, I just I'm just not on the whole motion control thing. Like every time I try to use like a motion control, like the Wii, try to play a game like a Wii. You've I never feel, played the Wii. I have played the Wii. Okay. I have played it once or twice. In I've my seen life him now. play the Wii. You've okay. seen me play it, and every time I play it. Unless I'm uh, having a little cough medicine, then it's not. Um, it doesn't really work. I feel like a little kid, and you know, I, I, I could never see myself playing Modern Warfare with the, a Wii, and I'm running with the with the nunchuck, and then I'm aiming with the nunchuck. I I just can't see it. Yeah, anytime yep. you try to adapt it, going the other way, you only have I think about a ten percent shot of of making it actually work. I think it works best when a game is developed from the ground up to work with the type of interface that your gaming system has. Exactly. Motion control is such a different approach to how we've controlled games in the past that it really doesn't make sense to try to adapt prior styles of gameplay to motion control. And if what you really enjoy is running around in Modern Warfare and playing in FPS, motion control is not going to be for you. That makes sense. That's why there's multiple product lines out there and why we have developed boxes that are powerful enough that if you want to play a traditional style game, those are available. If you want to add third-party motion controls to it and go that direction, that's available too. Kyle, any comment on the casual gamers and the new innovations from Sony and Xbox and uh, Microsoft? Casual gaming will never go away because people enjoy playing games. Just as 2PyR pointed out, people love to sit down in front of their PC and play solitaire. My father was a big arcade guy. He played Centipede. He played uh, Galaga. He played Space Invaders and Donkey Kong. Well, he's kind of hardcore then, right? Well, I guess. But here's the thing is that he can walk in on me playing a video game and just by watching it, determine whether or not he's intimidated by it or not. And I think a large portion of the casual gaming market is what they feel comfortable in playing. And, he, you know, he can walk in and see me playing Dragon Age and know instantly, this is not my cup of tea. But if he watches me playing Pagel, he's like, hey, can I try that? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. See? So I think it's always going to be there. You're always going to have a casual game market. Now, as far as these motion control things are concerned, personally, I feel it's a bit of a fad. And I don't know if it's going to be around. I, I remember in the mid '90s, you know, everything was VR, virtual reality. That's mm-hmm. what's going to. It's going to be the future. I remember paying twenty bucks at a Blockbuster to play fifteen minutes of a Polygon mess. Okay, sure. <laughs> so, and then it went the way of the dodo. So, does that mean the stereoscopic camera and the Sony device, which really looks embarrassing playing with it because it looks like something that you don't really want to be holding in your hands, um, <laughs> is also going to go the same way. I don't know. I, I, I admittingly don't know, but I know this. The Natal has already been scaled back as far as its technical power, 
and it's going to be pulling a lot more from the Xbox, which originally it wasn't going to. And I don't know all the specifics, but I do know this. When you start to scale back already, developers really haven't had a time to sink their teeth into the system. I, and what I'm hearing from a lot of talkback and a lot of other places is that these games are going to be just like um, Wii Sports Resort and these mini games that you'll find on the Wii. And to me, it's a little Johnny-come-lately. Now, what I love about the Wii has nothing to do with the waggle. And I've said this many times on the show. I don't like the waggle. I'm not a fan of it. What I like about it is what Nintendo brings to the game, which is exclusively different from what Sony brings to the game and from what Microsoft brings to the game. And I think that, especially now, we're learning that it isn't about so much the technical power of things as it is the content you deliver. Mm. And that's my answer. Right on. Johnny Capcom? Well, I think the growth of uh, casual gaming really stems from the point that more people own computers now in some form or another True. than they did 10, 15 years ago. You know? And even computers uh, on their, their phones. Their phone computers. Yeah, I mean, uh, more people have technology that allows them to play video games. And the majority of these people who would never have owned a console before, they don't want to sit down and try something like a hardcore game, like a Modern Warfare or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it just kind of goes back to the original arcades, you know? People... Like you were saying, Kyle, people would just walk up and play a fun little puzzle gamer, you know, like a little platformer. And uh, that's where a lot of the money was made. And it seemed like, I think it was uh, our former guest, Nolan Bushnell, said that's why he didn't like it was Street Fighter. It was that uh, people were intimidated by the fact that people were kicking the crap out of newcomers on Street Fighter. And then you drove the businessman who'd be out in his lunch away from the arcade because he didn't want to have some seven-year-old kick the living crap out of him in front of all his friends. Sure. <laughs> and, um, it's it's kind of like comfort gaming in a way. Everyone out there can come to games in their own way and be comfortable on their own specific system and just play whatever they like. And I think the reason it's grown so much, as I said, is just because there's avenues out there for people to experience games and these people who wouldn't necessarily have experienced games beforehand you know, in their everyday life. Are you looking forward to moving the sofa out of your living room and clearing everything out so you could do the Natal? Uh, well, I tell you what, all right, when they bring out Marvel vs. Capcom or Mortal Kombat or something like that, and I can actually uppercut, <laughs> swing an uppercut and knock someone into a pit, then I will get it. Okay, right? yeah. But until that time, no. You can already do that, pal. On what? The Sega Activator. Oh, yep. yeah, you rude. stand in the middle and you do your Mortal Kombat moves. <laughs> I wanted that one of those. As good as it sounded. Yeah, I wanted one of those so bad growing up. Oh, man. Sure. <laughs> I'd like to play a platformer where I jump. I will say that as well. Okay, very good. Yeah, well, what happened in Nintendo's Vitality Sensor, where the heartbeat monitor? Yeah. They, they unveiled it in E3. I had a great application for that. You plug it on your finger, and as long as you're alive, your character's alive. Where is it? <laughs> Eric, Alex, any thoughts on casual gaming and the new video input devices? Just as a complete aside, I think that heartbeat monitor thing would be a great thing to use in a, some kind of horror game. I think that would be uh, pretty cool. That, is, actually, that would be interesting. But the whole thing with the casual gaming, I mean, I think that Microsoft and Sony are completely missing the mark when they're trying to bite into this market. The problem with the 360 and the PS3 as a platform for casual gaming is that they're way too expensive. Mm. Uh, your competitor out there 
the Wii, you can get that for what, 150 bucks now? Is that what it is? I don't know. I mean, that thing is cheap. You know, if you're looking for casual gaming, you're not going to blow 400 bucks on a 360. You can play on your PC for for that much money. Mm, gotcha. I don't know. It's just uh, it's way off base. Hmm. You think they should have come out with their own version of the Wii? Yeah, something stripped down. I mean, I guess that's kind of what the 360's arcade system right, is, right, yeah. you know, but they're not going to get the market they're looking for with it. Yeah, I don't think they need it. Uh, hopefully, this move towards Natal and this move towards the Magic Wands, hopefully this was a move towards game immersion and not trying to tap in on the casual gamer, because I think they can attract the casual gamer with games that are already available, especially for download. I think the success of like Viva Piñata and things like that really went a long way as far as saying, yes, you know, introductory level people can get into these more powerful systems. There there are some things. I think that should go along with marketing instead of with right. trying to make some type of input device. Yeah. Right on, man. Hey, 2PyR, what do you bring to the Mega Council? Well, as a nice segue out of casual gaming... Yes. Uh, if you look at the numbers of who's doing game development on what platform, you will discover that more games came out in the last five years as browser games built around Flash mm. than for any other two consoles that you can name combined. And if you take out the PS2, because its game li- library is ridiculously huge, any three consoles combined. So the question that I have is twofold. What does the overwhelming market presence of flash bring to the industry that the consoles don't and why has nobody turned this into a viable business if there's so much coming out do you have an answer as far as what it means for the industry uh the closest thing i can get to an answer is as we talked about in the last one computers are ubiquitous everyone's got one pretty much every computer these days that is less than 15 years old has a web browser and pretty much every web browser has a flash implementation Mm -hmm. so flash is about as close to a universal platform for gaming as we have right now what i think is the main thing holding it up is that gamers look at flash and gamers think of flash games as the little whack-a-mole games that everybody was putting on their web pages in 1998 sure and the platform has moved well beyond that in terms of what it's capable of and i'm waiting for somebody to make a really interesting MMO out of Flash, because at this point, with Flash as a front end to a a massive database, you could do that, Mm -hmm. and nobody really has, I think because, you know, this brings us to the second part of the question, is why is nobody making a business out of it? Because people look at Flash and they think of the whack-a-mole games, there may be some reluctance on the part of people to pay for what is essentially just something that you display in a web page. It's a little different from DLC because even, at least with DLC, you're downloading something that isn't necessarily physical or tangible, but there are you know discrete data packets that reside on a hard drive on a device that you own. And even if it's just a 100K file that unlocks something that was already on the disk, you're still talking about things that are, have a physical, quote-unquote, tangible presence on your gaming device. Right. Uh, most Flash games exist as content that's temporarily loaded into your buffer, played in a window, and then disappears off your computer as soon as you click away. And I'm wondering if maybe that sort of ephemeralness is why people are reluctant to spend money. Well, I can approach this from uh, actually the other side of the the table here because I've developed for Flash, and I know the troubles since Adobe bought Macromedia this is a, quite a boring look at it from from my perspective because this uh, ActionScript 3, which is 
going to go the way of the dodo, uh, which Adobe uh, invested so much time and money into, is probably going to go away because there was a shift from moving in that direction. So I know Flash developers that re- really will only develop an action, action script too. And who's to know what's going to happen next? Adobe is handling it so poorly, and I don't think they realized what they were buying into when they when they took on uh, on Flash. Just the Flash piece of uh, Macromedia's product it was such a juggernaut because browsers were coming with it pre-installed at one time. Now that's not the case, but. Anytime you bought a new system and it had a more modern browser in it, it would have the Flash plugin already built in. And it was being put onto phones and it was being put on things. But as we see, even on the iPhone, they still can't do the ActionScript 3 on there. They're still doing these weird, wacky things. You can't display Flash content in the Safari browser on your iPod Touch or your iPhone. You can only jump to another window that might have a compatible version of the YouTube plugin. Hopefully in the future we're going to get that. We're actually going to get uh, the new versions of Flash, Flash Player 10 or whatever on our on our uh, phones and uh, browsers. And then maybe that will be a different story. But I just played a very Flash-like game and that was the new Castlevania. Castlevania Adventure Rebirth was completely flash-like i mean i can see no problem with making that happen on flash although it probably you know wasn't done in flash it definitely looked like it could have been and that's a pretty big title for WiiWare, uh, no doubt about it from konami so i don't know I, unfortunately i don't think it is the the gaming rosetta stone that it once was in position for but i do think that anyone that does try to create a gaming rosetta stone would really be sitting on a gold mine uh, if they could get it to be implemented on all the all the systems. Anything to add to that, Ralph? Um, well, as a guy who spent a lot of time in computer class not doing his work and playing Flash games on the computer, okay. um, I think, I don't know how it would be uh, lucrative to develop for it. I remember just going from game to game to game, and, it's, and then you go to these sites, and there's a million free Flash games sure. that you can play. Uh, I could never see myself, you know, putting money into any of that. You know, it just seems like it seems like it's something that you you do for thirty minutes or twenty minutes, or you do when you want to fail a computer class. So I don't know uh, <laughs> if, if if it would be something that that uh, that people would uh, make money in. And I don't think uh, developers like like you were saying earlier, everything is about making money. And I don't think um, too many really huge developers would go in and say, okay, we're going to make a, a flash game here, and and it's going to uh, it's going to be you know pay based or whatever, mm-hmm. something like that. So, but I think Java is is definitely doing it because most phones can handle that's most phone games are Java. Oh, are they? I I think so. Oh, really? I don't see the whole like phone iPhone gaming thing. Mm-hmm. I don't really I don't really get it. You know, well, the iPhone Just, is more based on like C plus plus. It's your own. Oh, okay, all right. But you mean like regular, like uh, little, like flip phones or yeah, stuff like that? Exactly. They use Java. Yeah. yeah, don't I don't know too many people that play those like uh, phone games too much. So um, it, it just doesn't seem like it's uh, that it will work. 
Right on. Well, you don't play a phone game the way a gamer plays games. You play a phone game because you're standing in line for 15 minutes and you got you know 15 minutes to kill and you've got sure. your phone in your pocket. Yeah, it's, it's the same. Yeah. It's a different market and it requires a different approach. But you know, people are making money with phone games, or else there wouldn't be a thousand of them. You can pay T-Mobile six bucks to download. Sure, <laughs> Hank Rogers. <laughs> yeah, Hank Rogers, exactly. Two pi R. Do you think maybe Java might be the the future as opposed to Flash, or you still still think Flash is the is the way to go? Uh, Flash has the advantage of having gentler system requirements, which was a big True. issue until basically uh, the last two or three years. Right on. Um, you know, they're, they're, the iPod Touch has more power than the computer I paid two grand for in college. Um, I, I honestly don't know. Java does have the advantage that, as you said, basically every phone is using it as a platform. Hmm. But I just I look at the number of things that are developed for Java and the number of things that are developed for Flash, and Flash is still a much heavier column. So it, it, it's puzzling to me that more isn't being made of this platform when it's so ubiquitous. Right on. Kyle, anything to add? Flash is cool. I've been a big fan of Flash games, and I'm not going to pretend to know anything on the uh, back end of how development goes. Mm-hmm. I just know from content, and I, admittingly, have been one of the uh, people to use Flash as a negative connotation when describing games. Right. I'm thinking back to um, Crystal Defenders when I reviewed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was one of my first reviews. I said, you're better off going to Newgrounds and playing one of the many better tower defense games that you'll find for free mm-hmm. it was a little negative but it was also true i mean there is a lot of content out there and you can create some great things I d- i've never seen an mmo done on it but i've seen other interesting things where multiplayer was used so i think it's there as far as development's concerned and business concerned i think that's when when you cut the legs out from under it flash is nice because it's open to so many different users there's so so much creative things happening because there isn't that corporate thought behind it when these people are creating these games and animations for sites like newgrounds so i think once you start implementing that corporate mindset of turning a buck on it I think it, it's like the same thing as like internet neutrality, where you're, you're taking away the creative process from the users and only giving it to a select few. And then I think it undermines some of the great things that we've seen come out of it. But I, I do agree, there has been a lot of fantastic content that has come from Flash. Yeah, and it definitely can tie into backside uh, databases without uh, much trouble. There's, 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 there's certain limitations to table lengths and stuff like that. Once again, getting incredibly boring and technical there are some some downsides but it de- definitely can uh, be a lot of room for growth in there johnny capcom well i think if you're going to start making money from flash you are going to have to change the perception of what flash games are from the ground up like you were saying people just associate flash with being something that you play for two minutes on a browser somewhere mm-hmm. a lot of flash games out there tend to be kind of knockoffs of different things and stuff like that i mean i'm not someone who's versed very well in uh, flash gaming i think you would really have to kind of revolutionize do something different with it evolve it to basically change the general public perception of flash from just being some mild distraction get it Uh, some street cred yeah exactly make a flash game starring the flash from dc comics i don't know (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure it's already out there yeah it probably is it's like flash is mario or something eric alex I think I've seen sites where people are making money off of Flash games. Uh, I think like Newgrounds and Congregate, sites like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they make their money through advertising and donations, but I mean, there's still money coming into them. 
I'm not sure if Challenge Games uses Flash or Java or what, but I've paid money to those guys, mm-hmm. and I've seen their uh, their corporate site, and I know that they just recently got $10 million in incoming investment. Wow. So, I mean, there's money there. I actually reviewed one of their games way back. That was that Duels browser-based game that I was talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're subscription-based. You can buy content for it. Uh, there's money out there. Right on, man. Tupar, is there any Flash games that you really like that you think are good examples of this? Or It's funny because Kyle's always talking about play a, a tower defense game on Newgrounds instead of uh, Crystal Defenders. There's one on particular on Newgrounds called Vectroids that literally brought productivity in my office to a standstill for about an entire afternoon when somebody discovered it and started passing the link around. <laughs> So, you know, people are playing these games, clearly. There's there's more use there, I think, than the perception would necessarily indicate. Sure. Well, uh, you know, Trip was on the show, and he was talking about their the Digital Chocolate's new MMA game for Facebook. So, yeah, I think there, I think there's a lot of room, especially with social networking and things like this, to bring, uh, bring Flash and bring Java or these little things. When are the consoles going to jump on instead of requiring their own uh, format? I, I don't know, but... Uh, that probably put some more money in her pocket. Kyle, what do you got for today's Mega Council? Okay, so we all play games, but I was going to ask everybody here, what are some of your favorite mini games slash bonus stages? But there is a requirement. The requirement is it's not a mini game compilation. Like, it's not a WarioWare uh, or sure. uh, one of those crappy Wii titles that have a bunch of really bad mini games. I'm talking about legitimate full-fledged games that have little games embedded in them that you enjoy, whether it be fishing in Zelda or the card games in Knights of the Old Republic or some of the things you could do in the Golden Saucer and uh, Final Fantasy VII. That's my question that I'm posing to them. And what, what are yours? Well, it's no secret that I'm a huge fan of the uh, graphic adventures games that came out of LucasArts. If I had to equate the experience that I have behind my belt with the graphic adventure games of the mid-90s on the PC to the real-world experiences of Vietnam War, I would easily have a human ear necklace around my neck. Uh, I love those games. And a lot of those games had some fantastic little mini-games embedded in them, and one of my favorites was Car Bomb in Sam and Max Hit the Road. Now, Car Bomb was basically just Battleship, but you would lay down your little cars, and then you would try to bomb the other person's car. And it was a lot of fun, and I just remember spending hours upon hours playing this game. I would boot the game up just to play this mini-game Car Bomb. Right, right. I think I brought it up before, and now I can't recall uh, what the game was. But one that pops immediately to mind was uh, Super Mario Brothers. In Super Mario 64 DS, whatever the heck this game is called, there were tons of mini-games. And Yoshi had some mini-games, Mario, Luigi. Luigi had, like, some gambling games. And But in Wario's mini-games, there was this one slingshot game, which was very much like the game Must Eat Birds that we reviewed on the show for the iPhone. Very, very similar. You had a slingshot in a lower level, you pulled back your cannonballs, and you tried to protect your four flowers from being bombed upon by bomb parachuted parachutes with bombs on them. Bomb, not bomb-bomb, I don't know who this little bomb little bomby i guess but just pulling back the slingshot and shooting the cannonballs up and toad two toads are running around made it a very very enjoyable game because i'm not a fan 
of 3D Mario, probably until Super Mario Galaxy. And as I was talking about with John, Super Mario Galaxy was actually the reason I started putting out the plea for a 16 by 9 television just for that game. But before that, I really didn't care for 3D Mario, and I certainly didn't care about any 3D Mario on a Nintendo DS, which is going backwards in power, where I had to use my thumb as some type of crazy, wacky analog stick with a uh, flamingo guitar pick on my finger. I don't know yeah, if you know. Now you can tickle Mario. You can. But I don't know, I don't know if you knew about the DS, but the Nintendo DS on its wrist cord had a little plastic piece that had a bump on it. And you're like, what is this for? And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to loop this around your thumb. And then in some games like this Super Mario 64 DS, you would stick your thumb with this flamenco guitar pick on it uh, on the lower screen and it would act like this virtual thumbstick. And it, it worked to a point, but it, you know, it took a little, little, uh, play to make it really work but like i said the slingshot game was inside there and i loved that that was the only reason i played the other game was i think power slave for the sega saturn you can unlock death tank in power slave by collecting 23 team dolls throughout the game and that was so fun that people were buying power slave just for that and i think the only reason people bought duke nukem for the saturn and especially bought Quake for the Saturn is because Death Tank Zwei was on it. Death Tank Zwei was hidden on Duke Nukem 3D. And you can either destroy all the toilets in Duke Nukem 3D to unlock Death Tank Zwei, or you, if you had a save on your Saturn from Quake, it would immediately unlock that for you. So that, that sold those games just to have play this Death Tank Zwei and Death Tank. And it was a wormy game. It was very wormy, but with tanks, and it was very cool. And the, the Death Tank Zvi was not quite as retro-pumped up as, say, a Tempest 2000 or something like that. But it was a little bit beefed up and a lot of fun. It was a blast. Ralph, I know that you must play tons of mini-games. Yes, I love, <laughs> I love mini-games. I will say, I played a lot of Final Fantasy, so a lot of my mini-games come from that background. Okay. Um, I remember playing um, Final Fantasy VIII, and in Final Fantasy VIII, they had this card game. And it was a really deep card game. And it, I don't know you know, the name of it. Cause Ralph, it was uh, Go Fish. No, it wasn't Go Fish. <laughs> it was a really deep, I swear, it was a really deep game. And I remember playing it over and over and over again. And, and like, you know, with those Final Fantasy games, it takes you a while sometimes to figure out what the mini games are about. And when I finally got the hang of it, I would, you could go up and just, I think, just go and challenge people or people in your party to play. And I would sit there for at least like five hours straight, just challenging the people in my party. Instead of going along, you know, and finding the ultimate weapon, I would just sit there and play this card game over and over and over and over again until I didn't want to play Final Fantasy anymore. Yeah. The other mini game was in Final Fantasy X. They had like this water football game. I don't know what the name, name of that was either, but, uh, I remember, like, you you only had to maybe play it once, mm -hmm. but you could go back to the arena and play it, and I just got hooked on it. It used kind of like the Final Fantasy battle system, too, and you kind of, like, used points to kick the ball or pass the ball, and it was all based on luck, on whether you were going to get the ball in the neck and stuff like that, and... I think I might have played those games more than I played the main Final Fantasy games. Well, yeah, and you—that's 
that's when I got away from, you know, space marines and stuff like that. <laughs> Amazing. And Final Fantasy VIII. So you were the you were the one that bought that. Okay, very good. <laughs> Final Fantasy VIII was a... I wasn't really up on RPGs. So, but you really loved Titanic. But I really hated Titanic. But I loved... Uh, but um, Final Fantasy VIII came out, and I just played a little bit of Final Fantasy VII. So when I got it, I was just all like... I felt like I was actually a smart gamer because it was the first time, you know, you had to use numbers and you know put spells in and stuff like that i was just like real hardcore shooting gamer before and then you know final fantasy happened and you know kind of worked out i felt good i gotta tell you not even final fantasy's mother bought final fantasy 8 <laughs> hey before we move on everybody yes. and so far everybody got two i only got one i did have a second oh okay what do you got does anybody remember mario paint sure of course. Okay. So this was a game that you get a mouse with for your Super Nintendo and you'd make like little animations or paint or whatever. But woof, one of my woof. favorite things to do with the game was Nat Attack. Right. You'd be a little hand with a fly swatter yeah. and you'd hit flies. I don't know why. I love that game. <laughs> and nowadays you'd, you'd look at it and you'd be like, this is a Flash game. But back then, I didn't have the internet. <laughs> so I loved that game. That game was just a lot of fun. There, a queen bee would come out. She was like a robot. Yeah. And uh, you'd just keep clicking the mouse. Click, 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 click. And then you'd dodge the uh, the bees that would come at you or the stingers that would come out. A lot of fun. I really enjoyed Nat Attack. It's um, funny you should mention oh. that, Kyle, because that's actually my wife's favorite video game in the history of video games. <laughs> All right. Amazing. Well, what else you got for us, Kyle? Beating the crap out of car in uh, Street Fighter. I don't know what that mode was called. <laughs> oh, that's I a stage. The crap out of co- well, it was bonus stage, but it, that was it? It was just bonus stage? Yeah, I think so. Okay, well, I like bonus stage and, uh, su- and Super Street Fighter too, where I punched the car. That was a lot of fun. Well, now you and, have to get um, fighting streets so that you could jump and break boards and uh, try to break cinder blocks and stuff in half. Uh, and then also you try to break boards and you jump around and then guys stand on each other's shoulders. You got to try to jump up and kick boards in half. Wow, okay. that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll do one more because I don't want to take any any games away from anybody else who might want to talk about them. But just about every mini mini game in Kirby. I really like just about every mini game you could do in Kirby. Okay, Like the Megaton Punch? That was fun. I like the Crane game. I like oh, yeah. um, uh, when you'd kick the bag and you'd have to go for distance or whatever. That was fun. I enjoyed that. Right on. Johnny Capcom. My favorite uh, minigames, well, the first one, I'm not sure if you classify it as a minigame or more so as a bonus stage. But seeing as you included the bonus stage from Street Fighter 2, I'm going to keep this one. And that would be the cattle mutilation stages on Super Space Invaders 91, the Majestic 12. Uh-huh. When you played this, but you have to stop UFOs from literally, like, abducting cattle off the bottom of the screen and then mutilating them in front of you at the top of the screen. Sounds uh, awesome. It is. It's brilliant. And uh, the more you save, the uh, more the happy the cows are, obviously, and the more points you get. That is such a great game. Oh, it is. It's one of my all-time favorites. Why Uh, why isn't that available in my Xbox Arcade? Because Taito hate you. I see. (laughs) (laughs) But um, anyway, my second one is, it's kind of an odd one to play, because uh, you only get to play it once for a few minutes, as far as I know. And this is in No More Heroes, and you're on a train going to meet someone to fight them, uh, as you do when you're playing that game. And Travis falls asleep, and when he's having a dream, you play a game called Pure White Giant Glastonbury. And it's basically a vertical shooter where you control this kind of Gundam thing. 
I, I wouldn't call it an amazing shooter by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it's just when you're in the middle of this game and you're going, okay, I'm going to go fight some guy with my lightsaber and whatever, and then you're just playing a shooter. And uh, it's a standard fare, but it's, it's really cool. It was a really cool little experience, and then you drop out and you're back into the thick of things, and it was really just out of the blue. I, I, I would love to actually be able to play it properly, but my third game would be Geometry Wars, which was included, of course, on is it Project Gotham Racing 2. Oh, is that where that came from? Yeah, I know. I never played Project Gotham Racing 2, but I really wanted to because of Geometry Wars. And obviously, this came out as a download, and that's when I got to really play it, like, you know? Right, but, right. Uh, I mean, that, that just goes to show, like, when a minigame just takes on a life of its own. Sure. Geometry Wars is one of my all-time favorite series of this generation. And, you know, you brought up that Kirby punching ball, and that somehow jogged the memory of Super Smash Bros. Brawl for the Wii. There's a part where you're, you have to, like, try to distance kick a giant punching bag Yes, that's uh, and a good game. That's that's a lot of fun. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to control, and it's a little un, unwieldy. But that's what I think makes it makes it interesting to try to play. And you just try to kick this, build up your press the button just at the right time to kick this giant heavy bag as far as you can down like a football field. Which is, I spent many 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 a half hour playing that. Can I include an unofficial game? Because I know we're not allowed to put um, mini game collections, but this is one of my favorites. Okay. Okay, it's a game called Hyper Bishy Bashy Challenge, uh, which came in the arcades in the 90s. And it was just excellent. It had three buttons, and you punched them at different areas. You bished and bashed them, basically. But there was one where there's three buttons, and obviously one in the middle, two on each side. But um, there was a bride and groom, and they get married. And then you have to punch uh, two buttons to make them run as hard as you can, you know, like in a track and field. You just slam the buttons, and then you hit the middle button, and the bride throws a wedding cake into the pews. And it depends on how, like, you have to throw it as far as you can, and then it just smashes into someone's face. That's just how far can you throw your wedding cake. And I loved it. Wow. Do you know who made that? Was that a Sega? Konami. Oh, Konami. Okay, very good. Eric Alex? The one that immediately jumps to mind is the mini game from Jade Empire, which was way better than the actual game. It was a 1941-style vertical shooter, and it was in between a lot of the stages. It was a lot better than the actual game. Uh, it wasn't really that great, though, but it was certainly it was a breath of fresh air. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what uh, was that for? The original Xbox. Oh, the original Xbox. Okay, gotcha. Yep. It was a Bioware RPG, and... It was uh, a confused mess. Very good. It was pretty bad. We're playing a lot of Astro Chicken from one of the Space Quest games. <laughs> Once and, again, uh, I don't know what that is, but I really... It, it, was, uh, it was like Lunar Lander, except you were trying to guide a, a chicken down. Did he, have a, did he have a space helmet on? I forget. Oh. I forget. He might have just he had did, an I'm A on it. his chest. Okay. <laughs> the graphics were pretty pretty bad back then, but uh, yeah. What I mean, was those that were for? The, that was, that was for the PC. Okay, very yeah, good. Did you play Police Quest as well? I did, but I never got very far. I couldn't... Uh, Police Space Quest, Quest was easier. Here's an example of a bad minigame. Police Quest 1, if you got in your car to go drive to the crime scene, you would then immediately crash into a wall and die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was impossible to control. That's, yes. as far as I, that's as far as I ever got in Police Quest 1 is you, go, you walk we out... The only two people on this panel who know what we're talking about right now, I think. You, Unless you anybody else out, played these games. 
you do a safety inspection of your car, otherwise you crash into a wall and die. And then, once you have eliminated the possibility of crashing into a wall and dying, you drive out and crash into a wall and die. <laughs> it, was, it was miserable. Yeah. So I guess I answered wrong. I, I picked out a bunch of really bad mini games. <laughs> there you go. I'm the wet. Well, it's just your favorites. They didn't have to be good. Well, yeah. <laughs> hey, your favorites can be stinkers. No problem. Two pi r. I think this might be pushing the definition of a mini game slightly. But one of the side quests in Grand Theft Auto San Andreas was, for no readily apparent reason, there was a motorbike stunt course set up in the middle of their uh, Las Vegas city. And uh, you could run, jump on the motorbike and run through the stunt course. And if you beat certain times and did certain stunts, you would get certain amounts of money. And you didn't even have to, to, to play the thing to, to complete the main story quest. But I probably spent about six hours just one night. I'm, I'm just going to beat this stunt course. Yeah. And then simultaneously the most fun one and the most obscure one that I can think of, way back in the early 1990s, there was a product... I don't, I'm not even sure if it ever made it to market, but I was a tester for it. It was called X-Band, sure. which was sort of a 14-4K modem for your Genesis. Uh-huh. And there was a total of four games that supported it, and it took like two and a half minutes to negotiate the connection so that you and your opponent could then play Mortal Kombat for 30 seconds until one of you won. But they knew that people were going to be staring at this and waiting for it to connect and being incensed at how unbelievably long it was taking. So they set something up where if you hit a combination of buttons on the controller, it would generate a logarithmic maze on your monitor and you could run through the maze and it would just keep generating more and more mazes every time you beat them while you were waiting for the connection. And I probably spent more time on X-Band running that maze than I did playing the actual games. We talk about X-Band on here quite often. It's great that you got the, the beta test set, the Genesis version, eh? Yep. Great. John E. Capcom, what are you bringing to the Mega Council for us to address? Obviously, a lot has been made lately for good and bad about, uh, you know, achievements in games. Mm -hmm. People trying to get achievements and whatever else. And uh, what basically I want to ask everybody is, what are the greatest feelings of actual, you know, achievement you've got from a video game? When have you done something with a video game and just been like, Wow, I really did something good here today. So you're speaking of uh, an, uh, playing a game for fun and you're feeling like you've accomplished something, not playing a game for the achievements or the trophies and things like that. Yeah, or even if the getting the achievement was like really hard to do and, okay. and you felt like, you know, whatever else. If you felt like it was an actual achievement. What about you? What the, me? Yep. I've got a couple. I remember, and this is kind of an odd one, I hadn't played Street Fighter 2 in a long, long time around the Christmas of 2006, and I hooked up my uh, Magic Antenna and I managed to get it running. It was transmitting pretty well that day. And uh, <laughs> I sat down, played, I picked my character, you always pick Ken, and uh, I was tearing through it as usual, and then Vega beat me like 10, 15, 20 times in a row. And when I finally smashed him into death with that dragon punch, I literally, I got up, ran out of the room, across the hall, uh, into where my girlfriend was, and I just shouted. I was like, I just beat up Vega. And uh, she basically looked at me with a mixture of amusement and pity. Sure. As if to say, poor little guy to her, you think that's important. It's not. Shut up. But, I mean, I was sweating at the end of that. It was incredible. Another one uh, that I have here, really, I felt like I'd gotten through something, was uh, when I finally killed William Barkin at the end of uh, Resident Evil 2. Mm. I mean, 
that guy haunts you in that game you know when he's mutating and whatever obviously the game is a thrill ride as far as being a horror game he is on the top of the train and you have to go out and fight him when he's on the top of the train and finally when you get down and you blow him into bits i was just like i had never wanted to kill a video game character more <laughs> and in fact i got such a satisfying feeling of blowing him into pieces that i've never played the other disc because i didn't want to give him another chance at me <laughs> <laughs> the day i beat that game i really felt like i'd achieved something even though i was you know i actually hadn't got dressed that day i was still in the dress <laughs> and, uh, i know exactly what you mean <laughs> my third little uh, anecdote here is uh, and unfortunately you can't really do this anymore because and I hate to be going on about the arcades all the time but uh, when you demolish some hot shot in an arcade yes. you know there's some guy and he's just mouthing off you know he's beating everybody you walk up you beat the crap out of him and then turn into him <laughs> <laughs> well what? Mine's kind of easy and kind of boring. I remember one Sunday I blew through Rygar for the NES, and that was just a great Sunday. And as soon as I uh, beat the game and it was like sun shining and everything, uh, it was a gloomy day. And as soon as I beat the game, all of a sudden the sun cracked through the clouds uh, in <laughs> over my apartment. And I was like, wow, this really is something I accomplished. Like, and everything really gelled together. So that was a very special feeling. I remember beating through the first Fighting Street, which if anyone's played Fighting Street for the TurboGrafx CD, you know that that's <laughs> almost an impossible game. because it's just, It just controls like the worst poop ever uh, known to mankind. And just... and. Believe me, I didn't start being able to do fireballs and, and uppercuts for years and years. I think after Street Fighter II came out in the arcade, and I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be able to do these. I remember calling TurboGrafx's tech support and saying, hey, am I supposed to be able to do these 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 uppercuts and these fireballs? Oh, yeah, you got to do them really fast. you got to really press the buttons, put it on turbo. And I'm like, turbo for a motion? And because uh, you know, no one knew or heard of this. You know, sweep forward, start down, then go to go to. Uh, now it's you know second nature for kids that come out of the womb and are able to do these <laughs> movements. But back then, I was like breaking my turbo stick, and it was going crazy. And seriously, it was it was a combination of luck and speed and skill to pull off some of these super moves. So I beat that game without using those, just using punches and kicks. And basically, since you only had two buttons, you're only doing one type of kick, one type of punch. So um, beating that game was uh, was an accomplishment. And also Polestar for the Neo Geo. Uh, that was uh, one of my favorite shooters of all time. And, and beating that was, uh, was a real uh, happening for me. Ralph? I don't think that I've, I've had the same experience since this ever happened. But when I, when I first got a Nintendo, I didn't, I didn't play... Um, I didn't know what it was, right? I was really young. I had no clue what a Nintendo was. You were blowing like into it. Yeah, so there's no way I can know. But I remember I could not beat the first, and Kyle always digs on me about this, I could not beat the first level of Mario. Oh. I couldn't beat it when I was, I guess I was like six, but I couldn't get past it. I remember staying up all night, all night, trying to beat that first level. It was the day after Christmas, and the sun was coming up, and I finally grabbed onto that flag and I just went screaming through my house just yelling at the top of my lungs I beat it 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 and I'm waking up everybody and people are like thinking I'm dying and stuff like that like my family is like what's wrong with you and I'm like 
I, I, I beat the first level. And like, seriously, everybody, it was kind of like when um, Agent Smith, when he kind of lost the fight at the end of the Burley Brawl, they get, just kind of just walked back into their rooms, respectively. <laughs> it was just like that. I got no, no congratulations, nothing like that. But I remember... why Ralph hates the wish. Sure. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's deep-seated. This is therapy for me. I'm glad you guys are here for me. Um, but uh, I, I just remember that. And uh, if I can think of another one, playing Street Fighter 2 to take John's uh, game when you finally beat Bison yeah. after like I remember me and my cousin uh, he had it so I would have to go over to his house to play it and we could never beat Bison ever never ever 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 beat Bison and I remember we would leave the Super Nintendo on mm-hmm. so we could wake up and try to beat him and like <laughs> You would go from actually having a strategy to just pressing every button you could as fast as you could. And sometimes that would work. But uh, somehow my cousin and I, we would switch controllers through rounds. And one time I didn't switch controllers. And he's like fighting with me, trying to grab the controller. And I just somehow beat Bison out of nowhere with him trying to grab the controller. (laughs) And I remember me like... I we were just sitting there like dumbfounded looking at the television like oh my god and I beat it with like the worst character I beat it with like Ryu so it was like the story was like oh he's he won in a waterfall but actually just beating Bison was like a big accomplishment to my to this day my mother still talks to me about that <laughs> and wow. just to be straight here so Bison is is Vega uh, John right Vega is is your last boss. Oh no no no! Vega oh. is the claw. Oh, he is. So, yeah, so thinking of Balrog. No no. Well, well, because yeah, you're right. Uh, well, yeah. Balrog is M Bison and vice versa. In okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, we got the same I think it was a did. triple switch actually. It w- was it a triple switch? Yeah. For some I think, reason, uh, I thought Vega in Japan, was in Japan. Bison's the boxer. Right. Vega's the last boss, and Balrog is the uh, weird guy with the mask and the claw. What? Yeah. Come on, Capcom. Get it <laughs> <What>? together. <laughs> I got to hold my nose up. I think I'm starting to get a nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> That's random. Yeah, Balrog was M. Bison in Japan. Uh, of course, so so Mike Tyson became Balrog in the United States. Vega was Balrog in the Japanese version, the Spanish cage fighter with the mask. So Vega is Balrog in Japan. And M. Bison for the states was vega in japan so vega was the final boss in the japanese uh, version with the shadow lu and his psycho power he was the final boss in japan so yes it's a quite a confusing mess when you don't want to get sued by mike tyson who would probably be like i don't know anything about video game I Pac-Man. <laughs> the sandman Okay. Uh, they were probably more afraid that he'd fly over and punch him than they yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't think he was one to be like, I'm gonna call my attorney. Like, I'm pretty sure he told somebody he was gonna have intercourse with them until they liked it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so where were we anyway? Who's next? I lost I place. Remember. No, it's two pi R. Okay, yeah. two pi R. Uh, both of my major senses of accomplishment come from the, the classic PS1. Uh, one of them is the day that I finally got the the proper actual final gone through the upside down castle ending in Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Mm. 
uh, because I had made the mistake of not reading any of the FAQs or guides. So when I got to the end of the first castle and killed Richter and got the horribly depressing ending, I was like, wait, this is the most popular game on the console and this is it? (laughs) So then I discovered that, oh no, you have to get the glasses and you have to see the orb and you have to go through the whole upside down castle. So the second time I played that game, I got the good ending and that was uh, truly... uh, it, that second castle is killer too. I mean, Castlevania is not a franchise that is known for being forgiving. Sure, uh, but that upside down castle, uh, there was a lot of things that were, that were really unfair about that one, if you ask me. The other one was the original Metal Gear Solid on PS One, because that was the first and to date only story based action adventure game that I've managed to play through to successful completion without once using an FAQ or a cheat guide. Great game. And being able to do that one and say that I did it legitimately, that just felt awesome. Right on. You're a smart guy. I can't Well, get- you know, there were certainly some bosses you know, I literally took on Psycho Mantis like 40 or 50 times unsuccessfully, and finally the game took pity on me, and I got a, a codex call from the general saying, you have to put the controller on the other port, then he can't read your mind. <laughs> uh. So, you know, I, I, I certainly had to put some time in on it, but I did manage to get through it. Right I need on. a game facts to get through, like, the first part where you're sneaking in. I can't get through that. <laughs> can't get off the, sub, the, the personal that. sub. Yeah. yeah. Kyle? I've got three, actually. Three games that had these uh, moments of just absolute glory when I got to these certain achievements. The first one was when I beat Metroid on the Nintendo after many, many, many hours of graph paper, maps being drawn, and (laughs) marks and notes and everything else. That was incredible, but it was sort of like this achievement of, like, now what? Because I had spent so much time invested in trying to beat this game, writing down these very long codes and everything else, that when I finally beat the game, I it was like kind of sad. It was exciting that I beat it, <laughs> but like I knew that if I told anybody, nobody would really care. <laughs> so, <laughs> the sad part is that you were drawing maps. I, yeah, you know, it was a little bit of a nerd alert, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> felt really good once I beat it, and then like moments after, it was almost like a, a mini depression where I'm just like, wow, I spent all this time trying to beat this game, and now that it's done. Uh, I guess I just move on. There's no other um, use for I, your Metroid skills. Exactly. <laughs> no and what do I do with them. all this graph paper I've used? <laughs> yes. <laughs> somewhere. It's, it's somewhere. Anyway, another game that I felt so good when I beat it was Super Mario Brothers 3. This was a game as being a 10-year-old boy. Uh, so much vulgarity came out of my mouth playing this game. Because <laughs> the moments leading up, to the final, but we all know the final battle. Oh, it's a piece of cake. You duck down, he jumps, he goes to the floor. That's fine. Okay. I used my P wings, all of them. I used all my P wings. So when it came to the tank and the aircraft and the boats, I, I was on my own. So forcing and clawing and biting my way through those levels was just uh, brutally difficult. And then my friend had the audacity to come over and as I'm struggling through the Navy battle, um, he's like, oh, all you gotta do is just jump in the water and you swim under the boats. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, you just swim under the boats and then you just pop out and, you know, it, I, I, it was a Nintendo Power. I didn't get Nintendo Power, so I didn't know these things. If I did get Nintendo Power, I probably wouldn't have wasted hours of my time drawing maps for Metroid. So, 
So anyway, where... once I finally beat that game, once I finally got up to that final battle, I was like, yeah, I was so excited. In fact, a funny story about Super Mario Bros. 3, one time I got so frustrated with the game, I threw the controller and it hit the reset button. Oh, <laughs> God. And, Oh, it was. Just, I was. I was like, I gotta walk away from this game right now. I, I gotta walk away from this game, and I walked away. It was terrible. And another game that I had uh, these moments of just absolute rage, but I couldn't put it down was Super Punch Out. Now I played Mike Tyson's Punch Out on Nintendo, mm-hmm. but I didn't get very far when you know when I was younger. And I, that was fine. I was having fun. But with Super Punch Out, I was in my teens when I decided I wanted to beat this game, and I invested a ton of time trying to defeat all of the many great characters that are in that game. And let me tell you something: those last two guys, their twin brothers, near impossible. Hmm. Near now, I never got up to Mike Tyson on the Nintendo, and I haven't tried recently. But the the, the twin brothers at the end of super punch out are absolutely brutal and when i finally defeated them it was one of those scream out loud moments where i was just like yes and i was i was saying all sorts of vulgarities towards the game i'm like i defeated (laughs) you you are nothing and it was great and i was i wasn't left with depression after that because i actually felt like i accomplished something great like i actually went three rounds with each of these guys sure um and one of the most frustrating moments in that game i discussed when i talked about punch out for the wii was the Mexican wrestler, mm. who was a great character, but his special ability was he would cock back his head and then spit in your eyes. And if you didn't block just right, the screen would get all distorted. Mm. And I just remember like trying to debate my Super Nintendo. Like, how is that fair? That's not fair. You can't do that in boxing. If they saw that, you can't do that. What do you mean? Spit in my eyes? Because I kept timing it wrong. I'm like, oh, this is this is not fair. This is not fair. And I'm, yeah. But I'm telling you, once I beat him, that was a mini achievement right there. I was just like, yes. Your parents are on the phone with the therapist at the time. I don't know. He's just talking to himself in the room. I don't know what to do. I need some help here. So, and then more recently, I try to sit down and go through Super Mario Brothers 2 Japanese style, you know, the lost levels mm-hmm. as they're known here. And I had a great moment of joy when I got up to World 8. And that's as far as I got in that game. <laughs> that because was like once they got to World 8, I'm like, I'm almost done. And then I couldn't get past that stage, but it was good enough. I just, I walked away. I was like, ah, I'm still glad I got to World 8 in that game. So those are mine. Great. Eric Alex, Eric. your accomplishments. Well, you know, I think the first one I remember was the first time I beat Streets of Rage 2 back in the Genesis days. Mm. There's uh, something about that last level where you're fighting through, like, the high-rise office building and the sun's coming up. And then you take out that guy with the Tommy gun. He's, like, the only guy in the game with a gun, and it's terribly unfair. <laughs> uh, but you you beat him, and it's like, yeah, wow, you know. this That was the first time I ever played a game where, like, I really felt the narrative, like, there was a character I really disliked, and I wanted him to be put down. Yeah, um, the other big one I remember is, uh, I forget which which of the Street Fighters it was. I think it was one of the Alphas. <laughs> there was a mode where you could play with your buddy against M. Bison. You were, you were Ryu and Ken. Oh, right, and, right. And you took on M. Bison. He was like beefed up M. Bison. Mm-hmm. And the first time my friend and I pulled off a, a double super combo victory on him there was a lot of yelling and high-fiving going on and that was pretty cool i think those are my two that i really really think about right on man and eric alex what do you bring to the council you know i brought this up 
on We Talk Games 11, but I want to talk about bad games that you bought and you played. Either you bought them knowing they were bad, or you kept playing them after you discovered they were bad. I'll get it started. I'm one of those guys who's a fan of Dynasty Warriors. I have Dynasty Warriors 6 Empires, and uh, you know it didn't hold my attention for all that long, but I bought it knowing full well that it was a bad game. And I had played previous <laughs> Dynasty Warriors games and knew that they weren't that great. But I still bought Dynasty Warriors 6 Empires. I think any of us that are old enough to have played in the arcades a lot could probably be convicted of willingly pumping a lot of quarters into some terrible games. Oh, sure. <laughs> like, uh, my big one was Xenophobe. Yeah, but that was a great game. No, that game was terrible. <laughs> Played it sometime. That was horrible. It controlled like crap, and it, there were only three enemies, and there was no point to yeah, anything. It's aliens. Yeah, but it was bad. It was bad. Even TMNT, the arcade game, it was pretty bad. You compare it with games that were out, even for the consoles at the time, like Streets of Rage 2 was way better than TMNT arcade. And I know I blew at least 15 bucks playing <laughs> TMNT. Sure. But you could play a four-player. That was kind of that was kind of awesome. Yeah. All kinds of awesome hard. with that. Well, I know that mine is probably the stinkiest of all the piles that you can get, and I've talked about it many times. I enjoyed Fantastic Four for the PlayStation 1. Uh, that, was, that was a game. So I, you were the one that bought that. I was. Yeah. <laughs> I established you bought that game. I, I, can, I, can, I can honestly say I only half bought it. It was one of these what we call Chung specials back in the day of the <laughs> Hong Kong import wizards for the PlayStation 1. That was like the first time that pirating really reared its head in the United States was for the PlayStation 1 titles. I also, speaking of arcade games, Gladiator was one of my favorite games, and I almost mentioned that on every show. And it, you know, that controls like China Warrior. There, that were, there's a game I beat, and that was horrible as well for the TurboGrafx China Warrior. And speaking of Flash games and relevance to this uh, particular show, I don't know why I was researching Flash games just yesterday, and I think I played Fly Squirrel Fly for about, I think that's what it was called. I played that for about 30 minutes, and I, it's, it's, it's an awful game. It's a game where you, you're a flying squirrel, and you slingshot yourself into dinosaurs, and you try to, you click the button, you only have certain amounts of stamina, and you can buy upgrades to your wing flaps. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's just a, it's an awful, awful, a great example of a pee poor flash game, Fly Squirrel Fly. And I, I must have played it for at least thirty minutes, and I didn't want to quit until I upgraded all my things to level three that you can upgrade. Uh, so those are some of my stinkers, Ralph. I will say I've had a change of heart based on like a review. I remember playing the first Devil May Cry a lot and just loving it. It was just a great game. And then they came out with Devil May Cry 2. And so you think that, you know, they're just going to, it's going to be like the best game. Yeah, sure. And uh, I, when I first played it, I loved it. I was just like, oh, this is so great. And then I read a review on a, a respectable site, well, an unrespectable now site. And as I started playing it after I seen the bad review that they gave it, I'm like, wow, this game is horrible. <laughs> this game is <laughs> I totally see everything they were talking about. You caved I, to the peer pressure. 
I totally did not see it before. Uh, sure. You know, and I'm not that type of person that will look at a review and say, okay, well, uh, you know, if I like it, I like it. And if I don't, I don't. I really don't care what anybody says. But it just seemed like after I heard what they had to say about the game, and I think they gave it like a 6.5 or something. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, how do you give this game a 6.5? I'm sitting here. I'm happy. I'm smiling all the time. What's going on? And after that, I just kept saying, like, this game is horrible. This is, this is like, mess. this is like the Japan Mario 2. This is horrible. <laughs> what is this? But usually I do pretty good research on games. I don't really like go after bad games because uh, 60 bucks is a lot of money sure. to spend on a bad game sure. that you're going to, you know, you're going to uh, sit back. But um, uh, did you write that review to Pyar, by the way? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are some of your favorite stinkers that you go back to or, or have, oh, um, have loved? The, the, the two, the, the biggest stinker I think I can pull up is the downloadable Watchmen game uh, that came out on PSN and uh, Xbox Arcade. I was one of those people who hated comic books until they read the Watchmen and mm-hmm. suddenly had my mind expanded and, you know, all, all of that great, uh, college you could write your thesis about this kind of moments mm-hmm. uh so i was sort of trepidatious about the about the movie coming out but i heard about the game and i was like i like beat em ups i like watchmen there is absolutely no way this game can fail mm-hmm. and all the reviews came out and they said this game is horrible it's not worth your 20 bucks don't bother with it and i said i don't care i'm going to download it anyway and they were right <laughs> <laughs> The game is just a slog through environments that are all... They don't even just use the same textures. The architecture... The first level is a prison, and there's four wings of the prison that you have to punch your way through. And each wing of the prison is modeled exactly the same as the previous three. They literally just copy and pasted the objects and put them in a second location on the map. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The enemies are all one of two possible character designs. They all have the same attacks. You block against all of them the same. The only variety in the game is the specific combos you button mash to take them down. And even after that, you've seen all of those in like two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the game is just a horrible waste of time. But if we're talking about... You finished about, it, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, didn't buy the second one, though. I figured I couldn't be that big of a sucker. What's I'm funny about boat. that is you can get the Blu-ray of that movie and both those games on a disc for uh, the PlayStation 3 for about 15 bucks. Mm-hmm. Which is more than I spent to download half of it. So what does that yeah, tell you? That's, that's a shame. No. Yeah. Should have waited it out. Yeah. <laughs> but if we're talking about stinkers that are absolutely terrible that you still buy and love anyway, I got to come back to Lair. Lair was, for those that don't know, one of the launch titles for the PS3, and the concept of it was that you were a guy who was riding on a dragon, and you're taking your dragon through the sky, and you're throwing fireballs at other dragons, which is a game concept that as a whole is not terribly explored, and has always been something that I've been deeply interested in and and wanted to do, and the thing about Lair was that at the time of the PlayStation's launch, it was totally a showcase for the six-axis motion control, which meant that the game was basically unplayable because the (laughs) six-axis motion control didn't work at all. Mm. And Sony, very quietly, about three months after its release, uh, released a patch that restored dual-stick control like any other flight sim and added a a whole 
other category of dragon that wasn't even in the original game, which is sort of the biggest mea culpa are bad that I can remember Sony issuing in quite some time. <laughs> and when the game is so bad that even the company has to say, we tried an experiment, it failed, here's a patch that makes it play like the, the, you know, the way it should have when it first came out. Yeah. I mean, that, that's got to tell you everything you need to know. That's almost unheard of. And believe me, you're not alone in the Watchmen. I know there are a lot of Closet Watchmen game fans out there. In fact, when I first reviewed it, I said, I, I, I have a feeling this will be a future guilty pleasure as, as what I come to call these uh, titles that we love that are actually stinkers. I think that Watchmen will be a guilty pleasure of mine. And I thought that we would hear Watchmen on Kyle's list because uh, you got that. You bought that twice, didn't you? No. <laughs> oh, you got it for I, free. I, I got the fifteen dollar okay. deal. Gotcha. That I was just talking about. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I saw you know a Blu-ray movie of the Watchmen, which I was lukewarm on, but I just got the PlayStation Three, and it was fifteen bucks, and I was like, okay. And then I looked, and I'm like, oh, it's got the games on there, so I tried them, and um, yeah. Those are definitely games. <laughs> <laughs> they feature two of the stars of the Watchmen movie. Oh. Right. My- I have another one, if I can, if sure. I can say that. I was just thinking of what? it when I, but yeah, I do, I do have another one. So. Um, it's not actually the game itself; it's the multiplayer. Halo Three. No, not Halo Three. Oh, okay. Uh, I was a really <laughs> huge. I was a really huge Gears of War fan, as you know. Really huge of the first multiplayer. Played it. That's how I know Kyle from playing Gears of War. Right. <laughs> just, but um, I didn't play it. No, he, he didn't even play it. That's how much I loved the game. <laughs> I just found a friend through other <laughs> friends playing Gears of War, and uh, and Gears of War Two came out. And we just had like a niche click of people that played it. We played it all the time. We played it for two years. Eight people. We go to Super Bowls together, family reunions, everything. And so now Gears of War 2 comes out and the campaign was all right. But they totally changed everything in the multiplayer to where nobody that I know plays it anymore doesn't play any other multiplayer we stopped talking all the friends that used to talk every day we stopped talking because of this game so i will give uh ba- the bad the worst like uh game that i've ever played like multiplayer is gears of war 2 and there are a lot of people out there that love it i hate it it's it's the worst and i'm guilty for buying it i bought it twice i sold it i got mad at it and then i bought it again <laughs> just thinking that maybe they had changed something like you know how you don't have anything in the refrigerator but you still go like oh please let there be something in there i thought there was gonna be something in gears of war 2 that i would find to enjoy but no every time i play it i just get so angry and mad at epic i just thought everybody at epic should have their pay docked or you know you know they, i don't know but i hate i i really don't like gears of war 2 multiplayer it's the worst game ever well now, so, i think that you yeah. jumped ahead to the next meeting of the mega council because that's that's games that you bought and then you bought again that you hate and you never will play again though that's a different question <laughs> but I'm, I'm 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 a doofus like that i'll okay. probably pop it in after we get through it now, now that i've been talking about try it, it again. Try I try not to talk about it because then I'll play it and then I'll get mad all over again. It's Very a vicious, good. vicious cycle. I'll we'll make a YouTube video of your hate for it and it'll go viral. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll punch the walls. There you go. I have milk all over the face. <laughs> I, I just drank milk and I don't even care. I drank some milk. I don't care. I drank milk. Doesn't matter. Kyle, what do you got for us? Your, your guilty pleasures. First off, bad games that I enjoyed was this game that I got on a compilation disc of Sonic games for your PC, and I believe it was called Sonic R? 
And it was like a like a Mario Kart type of deal mm-hmm. where you would run as the character. So you're, you were Sonic and you'd run the course or you were Knuckles and you ran the course or you were Tails and you ran. And then um, Dr. Robotnik, because I refuse to call him Eggman, is in like a little spaceship. And he falls around. And it was just like this really bad polygon mess. It was in 3D, and it was like a Mario Kart-type game. I don't think there was any items. And you just would try to race each other. It was a little course. I remember playing it too much for what kind of game it was. It was actually a really bad game. And I believe it first came out on either the Sega CD or the Saturn. I'm not sure. And another bad game that I played a lot of, and I kept hitting a wall with it was red dead revolver Mm. for playstation 2 because it was a broken mess and i kept getting to the same spot where it would corrupt all my save data the game would freeze corrupt the save data i'm like okay well maybe not this time play it again get up to the part it would freeze okay well third time's a charm right and sure enough, no, it was not the charm. This game just kept breaking down. It, it's just a broken game, and it destroyed my memory card numerous times. So right those are my uh, stinkers. Right on. My favorite crappy game was uh, ECW Anarchy Rules. Oh, yes. Me and uh, Kinetic Card, we played that game. He had a copy of it for the Dreamcast, and he had never taken it out of the plastic and he was going to get Balls Mahoney to sign it because he was appearing at some show. Okay. And um, <laughs> uh, the show got cancelled. Uh, <laughs> but we played the game the night before, and he broke it open. And the reason you play that game is because it has an option called a hate match. Okay. Yeah, try to figure it out. But yeah, that's all, that's all I gotta say. You're not gonna you're not gonna clue. I, I you know I own that game and and I own it for the Dreamcast and I don't know what the hate <laughs> match is. Go play the hate match. Okay. Uh, it's. I think we tried to play it, but I think we were probably drunk at the time as well. So, uh, that's probably how we got through a game of ECW. It's because it's awful. Sure. We actually decided that when we got to the show the next day, we were going to ask Balls Mahoney to wrestle a hate match. <laughs> in real life, but that never happened, unfortunately. Right on. <laughs> Dragon Lair. Do you remember that game? Dragon sure. Lair? That was a game that I pumped quarters into, and I couldn't make it out of like the first scene. <laughs> there were a lot of arcade games. Like, I mean, I I loved Legend of Kage, and I would I would drive fifty miles to play that game. It took me I don't know how many months before I realized there was a second level, and a third level, and a fourth level. <laughs> you know, I just loved jumping through the trees. I didn't know you were supposed to actually win. Yeah, you know? I just remember in the Dragon Lair game, like you were supposed to dodge something. It was like the first thing you did, and I didn't know how the cartoon guy moved. Probably on a, could, on a horse, you mean? Um, I think I don't that was know. one of the first first screens for that. Yeah, yeah, it was like something you had to dodge, and you kept. I kept dying, but I kept putting tokens <laughs> in the machine. Fantastic! That was a horrible game. Yeah. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it was great. It was terrible. Yeah, oh, it was my. bad, but it was so intriguing. It's like you're playing a cartoon. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it was an awesome cartoon. It was just a horrible game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew nothing about the cartoon. Just like, hey, I'm spending all my milk money on this this cabinet. <laughs> right on. <laughs> it's going to come full circle, and I'm going to wrap up this uh, roundtable. I'm going to start with the PlayStation 3 because this is what their slogan is. This weekend, I took a trip to the Irem Dance Festival. Inside of PlayStation Home. Yes, that's me in there. Talk about going back to bad things. I went to the Irem. Now, I am, I do mean Irem, the guys that have R-Type. That's really their own, Vigilante, maybe that was a hit way back in the day, but really right now, 
It's R-Type and R-Type Command, and that's about it. Uh, they had a dance festival, a very Japanese-style festival where you could go there for a limited time, get some free T-shirts, get some free kimono and stuff like this. And I did that. Now, also, inside of PlayStation Home, they, op- they opened up the Sodium One area, which is supposed to be this massive online game-playing area inside of PlayStation Home where you get in this hover vehicle and you shoot at other vehicles. And let me tell you, it played very well, controlled excellently, and it's a free game that's part of this PlayStation Home. I also watched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and with the voiceover acting on my Blu-ray for the PlayStation 3, and the Blu-ray features on that that I I received this for uh, the Xmas and stuff like that. And I did that 1943, the Battlefield. I play that constantly. I go back to that game at least once or twice a week. I'm just it's just so easy to pick up and do and earn some achievements. I went online and I downloaded some movies. I did Netflix. I got some minis and was disappointed at that, and they're horrible, and they do that. And then I, all these new games are coming out. I, I look at online, and here's Bayonetta, and here's what's this Angel one that came out, and the Dante's Inferno, and and all this, and the the new God of War is coming out, and the new uh, Uncharted two is already out. It's a big hit. It's a big blockbuster movie. And then the White Knight is coming out, which is this JRPG that just looks amazing. And here's all these games, and the PlayStation 3 does it all. Does it do too much? How can someone do all this stuff? Unless it's like jacked into your spinal column somehow. How do you have time to be in the real world and then give time to these game systems? And that's only the PlayStation 3. I like things on my Xbox. I like things on my Wii. The Wii's a whole nother world in itself, too, with, with their virtual console games and WiiWare. Kyle? Does it do too much? It uh, does no. it all. Does it do too much? No. How, no. Do, how can a person live a real life and then do all these games? Uh, well, they can't. <laughs> but um, the thing is, I probably wouldn't have bought a Blu-ray as recently as I did if it wasn't for the PlayStation 3 coming mm-hmm. down in price. I had really no interest in doing that switchover and getting into that scene because of the added functionality of it's a game system, it's a media server, and it's a Blu-ray player. I was hooked. I was in. I, I was, let's let's do this. Now, as far as the PlayStation 3 is concerned, it's debatable. Are they on upswing? Are they on downswing? Whatever. The Xbox, you know, you can go on there, you can watch DVDs, you can't do the Blu-rays, but eh, maybe that's in the future. I don't know. But I think that we are getting more used to devices that do multiple things instead of single-shot devices that only do one thing. So we went from the iPod that just plays MP3s to the iPod Touch, where now I can surf the web, I can play some games, I can listen to music. So I think that as a society, we're getting more and more used to this technology doing multiple things in a single unit. So I think, no, I think it is it is possible for it to all be there, whether or not you're going to be able to do all of those things or all the things you can do with the device is up to the individual and how much time they have. And as of right now, I don't have enough time to do all the things that I would like to do on my PlayStation 3 and my Xbox 360 and things like this. Right on. Ralph. 
I'm just waiting for it to learn how to cook grilled cheese. So once that <laughs> happens, I'm definitely in on the PS3's tip. Some um, people argue that it can already do that. It is a panini grill after all. Yeah, it does get kind of hot, <laughs> but uh, I just want to be able to just put all the ingredients there. I'm not really down with the PS3 because uh, when I first got the PS3, I really felt like I got ripped off in a way. I bought it before the price drop. I bought it when it was still, you know, $13,000. So it, you have to... <laughs> That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it was. I'm telling you, I'm still paying off that mortgage. Um, so when I got it, it didn't have um, HD cables. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how do they sell an HD system? Yeah. With regular, it comes with an RF adapter. That would be yeah, it did. <laughs> and uh, and then it gave me, uh, and then it had this controller that had the six axis, which I thought was really unnecessary, and it didn't have like rumble, and mm-hmm. you did, you don't really, you don't really notice how much you want rumble yeah. in your controller until it's not there. Sure. And so I got no like feedback from the game that I had normally been getting since like PlayStation One, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. or PlayStation Two or whenever. Seems like a girlfriend that once you dumped her, she got really hot, <laughs> and and she she started dressing good and she hit the lotto. So this so now every so now every guy. So now every time you see with her new boyfriend, they're so happy with her because she's got all this money and she's really good looking and stuff like that. So there you are, bitter. To get back on the topic of your question, um, it does do a lot of things. And I will say that it does everything good except for let me have fun with it. Like, I don't enjoy playing the PS3. I think I've been spoiled by the Xbox and by Xbox Live. But doesn't Xbox Live do too much? I mean, if you take advantage of the 1 versus 1,000, if you try to watch all their videos that they release with Major Healy and Major Nelson and things like this. Well, for a guy like me who lives in, like, an alternate reality where, you know, being a nerd is cool, it does just enough where it's a game system where if I want to go into these other mediums, I can, and it's good that it's convenient, but I don't feel like I'm overwhelmed by stuff that I want to. Like I've said on some of your past shows, I'm one of those guys that can wait six months after a game comes out sure. and play it and still enjoy it. You know what I mean? Right on. Um, I think that sometimes things that they do do to it can seem like very unnecessary certain things like putting the Zune marketplace on the Xbox. Mm. It already had a marketplace. Yeah. Why are you putting another marketplace? So now there's a game marketplace and there's a movie marketplace and now there's a music marketplace. You know, like all these things in this in this box that's supposed to play video games, you know? Right. Yeah. It's a video game system first and foremost, you know? Gotcha. 2PyR? I don't think it does too much. I think it does exactly enough. It's more that it does more than any one person really should be doing with it. Um, and it probably does more than any one person is interested in doing with it. Mm. You know, the, the, the whole reason that they went through this marketing campaign was because it was the only $400 console on the market. And, you know, sure, you would spend that much eventually if you got an Xbox and, and got the high-level one and got all the components and all the accessories and blah, 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 blah. But Xbox was able to say our upfront price is lower, which is, you know, it's the PC versus Mac argument all over again. Sure. The Wii was cheaper and it was also aiming for a different market than either the PS3 or the 360 were. So a lot of the reason that this messaging about it does everything came out was precisely because Sony needed a reason to justify charging people more money for it. And it worked to an extent. You know, there was a couple of guys at work 
that bought the PS3 because at the time that they bought it, it was the cheapest Blu-ray player available that had all of the features that it had. Right. And the fact that it also played video games was basically uninteresting to them. They weren't video game people. They were cinephiles. Mm. And to them, that represented the best value for their dollar in terms of a Blu-ray playback device. Nobody, I think, has ever bought any other console in history so that they could use it to watch movies. Sony has managed to create a device that can appeal to people that are interested in different things, that are looking for different devices, and rather than having to buy a separate Blu-ray player and a separate music player and a separate whatever, they can just buy the PS3 and it does everything out of the box. I honestly think that that's probably one of the strongest arguments in favor of it. Now, you know, as far as how can one person do all of that stuff, realistically speaking, one person won't. And realistically speaking, one person shouldn't. If for no other reason than that it would cost you know $15,000 to download all those movies, <laughs> then buying the terabytes worth of supporting hard drives mm. to, to store it all on once you've downloaded it. you know. And frankly, I would rather have a box that does more than I have time for than a box where I can do everything on it. And then six months after I own it, I'm like, okay, there's now nothing more that I will ever need to do with this. Why did I spend $300 on this? It just does it all, but it needs to do one more thing. I think that's time management for the individual to play. <laughs> like, how am I, you know, do, do I, why am I going to this Irem festival and getting a kimono? I, I guess I'm the only person that tries to do everything with it. <laughs> well, like, I'm also speaking of somebody that downloaded Home uh, the very day the beta went public, played with it for an hour and deleted it. So I also am kind of wondering why you went to the Irem Dance Festival, quite honestly. <laughs> I was going to ask about that. It's like, Really? Did you go to home? Really? Well, Irem is one of my favorite companies, and it's it's one of my favorite. And it's not an obscure company, but you know, I love R Type. Probably my favorite shooter uh, of ever. So that's that's pretty much why I like that. And to see that on there was just so bizarre. And then I was just thinking, you know, how how can people have time to do it all? Johnny Capcom. My simple solution to this is: don't play all of the games. Play some <laughs> of the games. Okay, and, uh, but you do I, live in Ireland, so you probably do more gaming than you do living in the real world. Uh, I try to, yes. but uh, <laughs> I like to, much like uh, you know, old people. I like to live in the past. <laughs> I like to play Neo Geo games and stuff like that. Sure. Um, no, I look. Uh, you don't have to do these things if you don't want to. Right. It's as simple as that. Like you know, if you want to get carpal tunnel and sit there all day and <laughs> play your games and smell and eat fake cheese out of a can or something and you know do all this stuff go do it if you don't want to do it you know go out and do something else we're all just passing time here you know i think the cool thing about these systems is they allow you to pass your time the way you feel like it i guess allow you to choose your own gaming destiny yeah pretty much very good eric alex how can we do it all uh cloning Ah, yes! (laughs) I don't know. You know, the thing that mystifies me is, uh, by all accounts that I've heard, which are mostly your accounts, Home was a spectacular failure. But the 360 is rolling out their own version of it, because (laughs) why not get on that horrible bandwagon? (laughs) I don't don't know, you know, I've rented movies on my 360, and... uh, Mm. I have to say it's more convenient but slightly more expensive than going to the video store across the street from me. Sure. You know, other than that, it did occur to me the other day that I always use my DVD player instead of putting my DVDs in my 360. Oh, okay. And 
I don't know why. I mean, I could consolidate, save some room on that counter, and I don't. So there, there's still sort of a stigma where you think, I look at my 360 and I don't think, this is also a DVD player. I look at my 360 and I think, that's the thing I play video games on, right. and the DVD player is what I watch movies on. Hmm. Well, so. also, the, um, the DVD player in the Xbox 360 is not very good. Like, uh-huh. if you ever watch the DVD on the Xbox, it's got this kind of, like, green shading to it. I don't know mm-hmm. if anybody's ever noticed that, but but it uh-huh. seems like if you if you play a DVD in the PS3, it's just immaculate. It's yeah, almost they, like watching a Blu-ray. It does have a nice upscaling feature on a PS3. There's no doubt about that. The thing with the 360 DVDs is that they look fine if you're playing them in SD, but who's going to spend that kind of money for a game system and then play it in SD? <laughs> right, sure. Yeah. And, of course, HD video discs went the way of the dodo, so uh, I don't know if there's a lot of people that still have that HD attachment uh, hanging off their system. They can surely play those discs under CEDs, though, you know. <laughs> Most people call it a coaster now. <laughs> right on. And who can forget VCDs? I mean, you, uh, Tupar, you mentioned no other, no other system was sold as a media player, but I remember people <sighs> buying the CDI just so that they could play VCDs. Now, maybe it was only three people, but <laughs> they, it, one of them was me, I think. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm going to be able to play VCDs as soon as I get the $300 giant module plug-in that goes into the back of this thing. <laughs> I, I walked by a shop there uh, two years ago that had a CDI in the window with a full range of um, VCDs for sale. It was like a retro shop. Wow. And I freaked out when I saw it. Started taking pictures of it. Girl. Uh, my girlfriend was like, oh, what, what? Is it really cool? And I was like, no, it's one of the biggest pieces of crap ever. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to be able to tell people I saw one. I did legitimately import the Star Wars trilogy on VCD because the Slayer of Pinball declared that he would never, ever release Star Wars on DVD. So this legit import from like Taiwan with the official raised Microsoft, uh, you know how you get uh, Microsoft Windows and it's got like a foil uh, authenticity seal on it and everything. These these VCDs actually had like a raised foil authenticity gimmick on the back of this box set that had all three, ch- uh, the chapter four, five, and six of the Star Wars trilogy, uh, and I I imported that from the uh, from the place. On VCD. <laughs> hey everyone, thank you for joining in on the Mega Council. This was certainly Megalicious, to say the least. Pleasure. Now we can go Glad back to, be here. to being all of our individual Lion vehicles. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go get some Easy Cheese and forget the smell. <laughs> <laughs> and we hope to talk to you all in the future. Bye now. Bye. Thanks everybody. Bye bye. Well, that was fun. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of We Talk Games. Please join us next month when our special guest will be pinball wizard extraordinaire, competitor, marketer, creator, and fan, Roger Sharp, and one of the biggies, Steve Ritchie. Special thanks to Trip Hawkins and the entire Mega Council. Thanks, everyone, for making this episode possible. And thank you for listening. And we hope that you download us next month on We Talk Games. Bye now. We Talk Games.